This summer, Coors Light wants you to retire, even if it's only temporary. Take a break from your nine to five for nine holes of golf. Trade those spreadsheets for a bingo card. Or swap your office chair for a water aerobics floaty. This summer, welcome to temporary retirement. Coors Light, made to chill. Copyright 2023, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. Well, I found out today I'm doing it all wrong. Doing it all wrong. You ever read one of those uh, self-help books or maybe you tune into a talk show or you hear an expert guest talking about, well, here's how you do, here's how you live life. You know, and they give you all the secrets or maybe you're just scrolling on social media at night right before you go to bed, letting all that uh, all that light into your brain, telling your brain it's, it's still daylight out there. Maybe you're like me and you do that and you, you stumble upon somebody who's got all the secrets. Well, I had that moment today. Interviewed Chip Kelly this morning. Oh, dark 30. Well, it was 8.30. Chip Kelly was uh, already had already had team meetings. He had already got up. He had made his bed. His players made their beds. And he was ready to go through what he called Fast Friday. They don't do a walkthrough. He says it's 108 minutes. And the UCLA football team just kind of hustles through their walkthrough. So it's more like a jog through. I like that. I like that he thinks outside the box like that. But Chip Kelly, in the course of the conversation, started talking about sleep and the habits he has and what he's learned about sleep and your circadian rhythms and why it's important not to have anything on your nightstand. And, you know, he said to me, John, when I go to bed, I go to bed and when I get on a plane I close my eyes and I go to sleep he must have a sleep mask of some kind damn it I gotta ask him that but Chip Kelly just basically shot a hole in everything that I do you know here I am I got a cup of coffee in front of me on the uh, on the desk here as I'm about to do this radio show and it's after three o'clock in the afternoon should not be having caffeine here I am drinking a cup of coffee Uh, you know at night I'm often working late I don't have normal rhythms uh, Chip Kelly was talking about getting into a rhythm and a sleep rhythm and how your body knows that it's time to go to bed. And he says when he goes to bed, he, he almost falls asleep immediately. He's like a robot, I guess. And he goes to sleep and he does not look at his phone. And in fact, he doesn't have his phone anywhere near his bedroom. Like his phone is not sitting on his nightstand like yours is he's, or on the floor next to him. It's nowhere near him because he knows that damn phone is just going to keep him awake. And keep him up at night. And so uh, I am reevaluating my relationship with sleep. I am reevaluating the cup, the cup of coffee on my console, even though I'm going to drink it today. I'm reevaluating when I exercise. You know, I, I usually work out in the middle of the day. Chip Kelly likes to get up and go at it in the morning. Although, when you look at Chip Kelly, you don't really think bastion of health and physicality. You just think that guy's a really good football coach. He thinks outside the box. And he probably revolutionized and changed football more in the last 15 or 20 years than just about anybody in college football. The influences of Chip Kelly are all over college football. They're all over the NFL. 
And got a chance this morning, along with John Wilner on our podcast, Kanzano and Wilner, the podcast, to pick his brain for about 40 minutes. And, you know, it was a uh, it was an interesting conversation because it varied between us talking about his time at the University of Oregon, said he cried when he uh, informed the players that he was leaving for the Philadelphia Eagles. I asked him the question. I said, did you leave at the right time? Meaning he could have left a year earlier. And, you know, he was remember he was uh, in that uh, in that flirtation with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And had he left a year earlier, maybe it would have been different for him in the NFL. Like you can second guess that to death. But he said he didn't want to leave Nick Aliotti. He didn't want to leave Gary Campbell and Steve Greatwood and Mark Helfrich. And he was thinking about all the lives that he was going to change if he left the program and Oregon made a change of regime, as it did several years later after Mark Helfrich pivoting to Willie Taggart and then Mario Cristobal. And as we all know, when Mark Helfrich got fired, it was a uh, it was not just Mark Helfrich that went out the door. It was coaches, assistant coaches who had been with Oregon for 30-plus years, Steve Greatwood, Gary Campbell among them. Uh, Chip Kelly also talked about his appreciation for Navy SEALs, which I find interesting. You know, uh, we often think about first responders, and my wife likes to say, you know, uh, we were at the 9-11 Museum, and she, you know, she's talking to the two young kids in our household, the 7-year-old and the 9-year-old, and she was saying to them, you know, these firefighters who you see on the wall here who gave their lives, like, you know, they ran toward the building. Everybody else was running away from the building. And Chip Kelly made a very, uh, a parallel sort of comment about the Navy SEALs. He said, when... When gunfire breaks out, most people or the human inclination is to turn and run the other direction. And he said the Navy SEALs, they don't. They run toward the gunfire. And so he talked about all of that. In fact, he has a Navy SEAL that's on his staff at UCLA that he consults with. And, you know, he can uh, ask ideas of and pick the brain of this Navy SEAL. That's, I find that very interesting. We also talked about realignment, college football, what he would do to fix it. Seems pretty simple. What he is proposing, and I'm going to let you hear some of that interview coming up on today's show, but it seems very simple what he's proposing. And yet when I talk with the athletic directors and I talk with university presidents and I say to them, why don't you just do what Chip Kelly's saying? And he went into far more depth today in what he would propose that college football do. He is proposing that the entirety of Power Five, including Oregon State and Washington State, 64 teams, break off and go do their own thing, and then uh, the other, uh, you know, the other classes of football do their own thing. And he is also proposing that uh, the schools be divided into four different divisions. So you would have essentially, what is it, uh, you know, uh, a division in the in the Western time zone, Pacific time zone. You'd have a division maybe uh, in the Midwest. You'd have a division in the South, and you'd have a division in the East. And those 16-team uh, divisions would, uh, you know, then compete with each other, but also then uh, have some crossover games against the South and North and East, you know, in the in the in the East. And so I thought it was really interesting. And he talked about the numbers involved with that. And it's, you know, the NFL has 32 teams. And Chip Kelly says, "You give me 64 teams, I'll guarantee you that we'll get more than 75 million dollars per school out of the television deal." Why not do it? Well, athletic directors will tell you there are Title IX implications. There's problems there. There's the, the, the expiring TV contracts that are staggered in the Big 12 and the Pac-12 now as the expiring deal is coming uh, to fruition. And, 
and uh, the Big Ten and the ACC and the SEC and that you can't do it because they're not all lined up uh, at the same time. And I, to that I say nonsense. I say if you go back to the TV partners and you propose, hey, this is what we want to do. We want to do it with 64 teams. We, uh, we want to uh, figure out a way to make this work, and we'll give you value for what you've already bought with your existing contract. Let's open a conversation about it. I would love to see what those conversations look like. Now, to the athletic directors who are saying, this is visionary thinking. This is bold thinking. Chip Kelly is throwing ideas out, but he doesn't really know the technicalities of trying to splinter football away from the rest of the sports and then try to play volleyball, soccer, baseball, softball in their existing Pac-12, Big 12, ACC, SEC, Big 10 footprints. Uh, to those uh, to those individuals that would say, hey, it's more complex than Chip Kelly's making it, I would say that all bold and big ideas come with hurdles and obstacles and speed bumps. And that's what the uh, visionary people are for. They're there to give you the path. Now get in the room and nail it down. Figure out how to get there. Um, you know, figure out how to how to build the building. You know, everybody goes, well, it's it's great to say build a stadium in downtown Portland or in Seattle or bring a bring an NBA team back to Seattle. It's great to say that, but gosh, there are so many obstacles and so many hurdles. And yet, we all know that there's going to be an NBA franchise that pops up in Seattle, and that we know that the NBA is going to Vegas, and the A's are going to play in Vegas, and so things happen. And uh, what it takes is it takes some brains to sit down and do it. Uh, you'll hear about seven minutes of that Chip Kelly interview coming up later in the show. But it just really got me thinking in the same way that I'm thinking about my health habits and my sleeping. And, you know, I'm looking at Chip Kelly and I'm going, you know, that guy was such an interesting character that entered our ecosystem right here in the Pacific Northwest when Mike Bellotti picked up the phone called the guy who was coaching at New Hampshire and said, hey, you've got some crazy ideas. I love what you're doing on that level. I would love for you to come out to Oregon, come out to Eugene. Let's talk about it. He eventually hires Chip Kelly. Chip brought it up today. He says, if Mike Bellotti never makes the phone call, who knows? Like, you know, he's still at New Hampshire? Probably. Uh, is he happy? I don't know. But now he is at UCLA. He has elevated the Oregon program. He's had two tours of duty in the NFL. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's now looking at college football, and he says what he sees happening, frankly, is sad, particularly in the Pac-12 conference. And so I love that he's thinking about it. I love that he's talking about it. Does he want to be the czar of college football? He says no. He said he's great at coming up with ideas. He would not necessarily want to be the one who has to execute them, but he does believe that you have to have somebody in charge. You need a commissioner in charge. You need somebody in charge or somebody's in charge of college football, and you have to give them the authority to, uh, to uh, you know, enforce regulations, and you have to give them the ultimate authority to uh, dictate what happens in college athletics or it just doesn't work. He suggested a panel and a committee uh, consisting of Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, and Gene Smith, the uh, outgoing Ohio State athletic director, and David Shaw, the retired uh, for now, Stanford football coach, and Chris Peterson, the uh, former football coach at Washington. He says you have to have people who have done it on that front line. You have to have people who have walked the walk. And I know one of the big frustrations that I've heard over the years from college football coaches, particularly in the Pac-12, when they got into meetings with athletic directors and conference commissioners, Larry Scott, George Klyovkov, there was often a lot of frustration from the coaches 
because they said these guys don't understand how the job is done. They don't know what the obstacles are. The ADs, uh, uh, they don't know how to run a football program. Otherwise, they'd be running a program. It's a hired paid job. The the university presidents, they know how to run a campus, but they're not familiar with what's going on in the obstacles and the challenges that coaches face. And conference commissioners, they're now negotiators and and uh, they are uh, they're attorneys. They're not they're not coaches. They, so they don't understand what is happening in college athletics. And so uh, Chip Kelly with a lot of wisdom and a lot to say. I'll reset part of that interview today and I'll talk about it piece by piece. I have two clips in particular that I want to play for you. We got a great show today. Stephen and I are going to break down the Saturday games. By the way, Chip Kelly uh, told me he's getting on a plane. Uh, he texted me as he was getting on the plane just a couple hours ago. His team is heading from uh, L.A. down to Stanford, where they're going to play a football game. And he sent me, uh, is it a GIF or a GIF, Stephen? Is it a GIF it's that a someone GIF. sends you? It's is it a GIF? GIF? Yeah. Is it a GIF I say or GIF. a GIF? I say GIF. Judah, can you back me up on that? Is it a GIF or a GIF? Do you know? You know, I always I always get it backwards. I don't know. But yeah, he sent I me go, one. Uh, I go yeah. Jeff. You go Jeff? And I what do you Jeff. go, Steven? I go Jeff. You guys are both Jiffers. Okay? Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, it might be a gift. It, it might be a gift. But it when uh when Chip was getting on the plane, he sent me this gif or Jeff of a baby who was face planting into the uh into the bed going to sleep. Like he was going <laughs> he's gonna be taking a nap. But Steven and I, you're we're gonna kick around the games. What's going to be happening this weekend in the Pac-12? Who we think is going to win? Why it matters? We're going to also going to take a look forward in the Pac-12 schedule to talk about what game we are most anticipating that is still ahead. Oregon State has a big one hosting Washington. That's on my radar. Also, Oregon's hosting USC. We'll talk about the big games that are coming down the stretch. Uh, also, we'll play some punch at audio. Anna will be along we got a great show for you today. Last night on Thursday Night Football, interesting scene. Steven, did you watch the game? You had Trevor Lawrence and the Jaguars in New Orleans uh, against Derek Carr and the Saints, who were really bad in the first half and pretty good in the second half. Did you watch it? I did, yeah. It was, uh, it was a real interesting game, John, because the Saints crowd, I mean, they were so mad at the New Orleans Saints for about you know three and a half quarters because they played so badly and Derek Carr was doing so bad and then that last you know last half of the fourth quarter they really came alive and made it a game but uh, I mean that that crowd seemed like they've had enough of the Derek Carr Dennis Allen experience I tell you that yeah I mean it's very very few times that you can actually hear the home crowd turn on a team in the stadium like when you're watching on TV and it was evident like right before half. And early in the third quarter, that the the fans were they'd had enough of that. But what what do you think happened? What pivoted and what changed for the Saints in the second half? And can they count on that down the stretch, or is this just the NFL where seventy five percent of the games end up being one score games? Yeah, I think it's more just the, if this is the NFL, and you know the Saints have a really good defense. You know, we, me and Jude were talking about this yesterday. The Saints and Dennis Allen. Dennis Allen knows what he's doing when he coaches defense. Now, I don't think he's a very good head coach, but defensively there's a lot of things you can like about him. And so I think because of that, they're going to stay in ball games. But he's also going to be very conservative in that situation as well. And that, that comes across when Derek Carr is throwing a lot of checkdowns to Alvin Kamara, who had you know double-digit catches. So I think in the second half they looked to throw the ball down the field a little bit, and it worked. I think Jacksonville also, they were missing some players. They kind of they went to that you know more of a prevent type of defense and that's what happens when that happens. You know, when you do that, you give up a lot of points. But Trevor Lawrence, I thought, 
he he looked good for being questionable coming to the game. Had a couple nice, really run, really good runs. Uh, I, I think Jacksonville's really good. I, I don't know how good the Saints are. I I think I would lean on them to uh, continue losing and not win that division. But uh, I, I think Jaguars are actually pretty good, and it was a nice little win for them. Jaguars look like a playoff team to me, and they look like a team that could win a playoff game. I don't know if they can get it to a Super Bowl, but Trevor Lawrence is good, and and he looks like he's got it. If he's healthy, he's got it. I like their running backs. I Their defense, I think, is sneaky good. You know, they got a couple players that are impact players, and I, I hated Kirk Herbstreet on the broadcast last night because for people who have watched Pac-12 football, you know Devin Lloyd has been just a, uh, you know, a wrecking ball for Utah on defense and was, you know, Oregon fans will remember him in the Pac-12 title game a couple years ago just being an absolute devastating player. And Kirk Herbstreit's talking about him like Devin Lloyd has evolved suddenly into a playmaker. The guy's been doing it his whole life. Like, I just hate when broadcasters do that and they try to be like, Oh, he's really taking a step forward. No, he was a star. He was a first-round pick. Well, what's up with that whole entire broadcast? I mean, Al Michaels is not giving his best efforts. And, uh, I, you know, I love Kirk Herbstreit in the college game. I think he's kind of an awkward fit in the NFL. Like, is that just me, or am I off base on this? No, you're right. You're right. Al Michaels, to me, it almost feels like he didn't understand what streaming was, and they told him he was going to be on this Amazon broadcast, and he thought, well, I'll just loosen my tie and kind of hang out and broadcast a little bit and – you know, we're getting more. I think we're getting a more authentic look and less of the broadcaster, Al Michaels. And and he said a couple things when the games are bad that you don't want a broadcaster to say. I mean, you know, essentially saying this is a terrible game. Get get out of here. So I I don't I don't think we're getting a full effort from him. I think you're right. And then Herbie, I I agree. I like him on college games. I think he's gotten a little bit big, and and I think it's too much to ask him to absorb what is going on in the NFL. Uh, while, you know, uh, on a Thursday night and then pivot and absorb what's happening on Saturdays with ESPN's college game day and the game that he's covering. And so I even saw him. I saw him at the Oregon-Washington game. He's down on the sideline before the game. He's walking his dog. Like, it's a, it's a big flex for Herbie, like walking around the stadium. And I don't mind that, but I was just like, gosh, this guy's super busy. And when he says stuff like Devin Lloyd is really emerging into a uh, into a game changing player like i was like did you not watch him in college like that's where you saw him star he was devastating for utah on the defensive side of the ball i thought he might have been the mvp of the pac-12 he was named defensive player of the year he's a first round draft pick it was like it's not like he's been hiding out yeah and, and they even said it on the on the college game between oregon and washington at the end of the game he's like you know i, I do i do the nfl on thursday night and there's no atmosphere that you can have in the NFL like there is in college football. So it just seems like to me it's both guys looking to get that paycheck, which is fine. You know, I, I got no no problem with that. But it just seems like the there, there's not a lot of, uh, you know, not a great call. Like the Christian Kirk touchdown call by Al Michaels was very uninspiring at the end of the game, and it was a game-winning touchdown. He called him out at one at the one-yard line and just kept saying, oh, he's out at the one. He's out at the one. Oh, no, it's a touchdown. And it's just, I don't know. It just, it just doesn't do it for me this year or last year, really. So you know, the Amazon product is kind of weird in general, just the whole streaming thing, but I, I feel like they almost need to uh, get some new broadcasters in there to li- liven it up a little bit. Yeah, I know it's hard, too, because, you know, you had some iconic broadcasters that have retired or maybe are being phased out in the last couple of years, and, and there's a lot of the stable uh, of college broadcasters that, that I don't like. But, uh, you know, you, everybody knows, listeners know, the guy I really love to hear is very polarizing. It's, you know, Petros Papadakis. Petros is polarizing. He's not for everyone. 
And I find it interesting that, you know, Fox will put him on the Thursday night and the Friday night games. He's often calling two or three games a week. And ESPN occasionally will use him and has used him in the past on games. But I don't know if he's mainstream enough. And I wish that somebody would put him on a big game and let him call one because I, I would rather see Petros on that Thursday night broadcast just spitballing and telling it how it is. And I think, you know, that's the kind of broadcaster I want. And I, not Al Michaels, who's on his way out, or Herbie, who's, who's, who's you know, with all due respect, half-assing it. Uh, all right, we got Punch and Audio coming up. Uh, you'll hear a little bit of Chip Kelly and my thoughts on that. Our picks for Saturday, we're going to lock them in, the picks for tomorrow. you got the BFT statewide. Make sure that you're not drinking coffee after 3 o'clock and make sure that you are not flipping around on your phone right before you go to sleep. Chip Kelly says you'll sleep better. Leave it here. Forgive me, but when I uh, when I read about this Michigan sign-stealing, uh, signal-stealing scandal that is going on and the allegations that are being levied towards the Wolverines, I can't help but think about the Houston Astros banging on trash cans. Did they learn it there, or is this just a um, another manifestation of the if you're not cheating you're not trying mentality of today's sports world or is this just um is this something that uh that uh people are um you know maybe trying to uh justify as saying hey it's an edge and we're all looking for an edge um i don't know i don't quite know what to make of it i also think that um it's really sad and uh so now uh the ncaa has uh, has uh, broadened their investigation into Michigan. Jim Harbaugh telling uh, telling uh, people in a statement that he has he did not have any knowledge or any information regarding the program illegally stealing signals, nor has he directed a staff member or others to participate in off-campus scouting assignments, um, according to Yahoo Sports. Uh, there is um, an investigation, and and uh, apparently Mil- uh, Michigan allegedly had some people attending games of future opponents, as well as possible college football playoff opponents, to gather information on signs used to call plays on offense or defense. Um, Harbaugh's attorney gave a quote, and he said what every attorney would say in that situation, so I'm not going to bore you with it. Um, also... Um, you know, uh, U.S. Integrity, a Las Vegas firm that monitors the betting market, sent out an alert to its sportsbook clients regarding Michigan yesterday. And, um, you know, it's uh, now, you know, what's going to happen out of this It helmet communication like the NFL, because the NFL now is not signaling everything in the NFL. You're just talking to the quarterback in their ear like Anna's mind was blown. Earlier this year, and she she said, uh, you know, NFL game was on, and uh, I said uh, the crowd was loud, and you could see the quarterback was putting his um, his hand by his ear, and then uh, he had one ear hole taped over, and I said uh, he can't hear; he's having trouble with the uh, hearing the coach. And she said, "What do you mean?" And I said, "Well, yeah, they're talking in his ear." And she said, "What?" And so it was surprising to me that she didn't know that the NFL was using helmet communications for signals. But you know what's going to happen? College programs are going to use helmet communications. This is going to spark that. Like, missions, this investigation, I'll tell you how it's going to end. It's going to go on and on and on. 
The Astros and the Wolverines will continue to deny that they were involved. They'll continue to have any knowledge of it. They will deny, deny, deny. The guy who has been suspended with pay, the uh, staffer that is supposedly at the center of this controversy, he will uh, disappear. And Connor Stallions, he will disappear. And uh, we won't hear a lot from him because uh, they'll make sure that he's taken care of. He'll be under a gag order. And and then what will happen is, like three years from now, when Jim Harbaugh's gone at Michigan, the NCAA will slap Michigan on the wrist with some kind of penalty that will affect kids who are like seventh graders right now. And then uh, everybody else will go, hey, this is a good idea. We need to do what the NFL is doing with helmet communication. And so you will see only programs that cannot afford helmet communications signaling in place. Like when Oregon plays Portland State in a non-conference game five years from now, you know, Bruce Barnum will be on the sideline at Portland State, you know, signaling in place, and uh, Dan Lanning will be on the other side talking to the quarterback in his ear. That's that's where it's all headed. Let's play some punch and audio. We got great stuff today. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Let's start with the Blazers. They will tip off the 2023-2024 season next Wednesday on the road against the Clippers. Chauncey Billups was talking about what makes a practice fun. Here's the Blazers coach. I think the, the the competitive nature of it, you know, um, to be honest, the, the best practices I've ever been a part of as a as a player is just, you know, it's it's, it's almost a fight or two. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, the competitive fire that people play with, um, the attention to detail and what we're trying to do is a big deal. Um, the way we kind of move the ball and everybody's kind of contributing. Like, all of those things, all in one, you know, um, make it a great day. Blazers over under win total for the season listed on DraftKings at 28 and a half. We've talked about that. I like the under, barely. Who's the Blazers' best player? Is it DeAndre Ayton? Steven, who's the best player on the Blazers roster? Yeah, it's either DeAndre Ayton or Anthony Simons. I'd probably lean... Uh, DeAndre Ayton, I think you're right on that. Uh, but Anthony Simons, I think he's going to score the most points. So I think a lot of people will lean to him. But uh, no, I'd, I'd give it to DeAndre. I think he does a little bit more. DeAndre's making $32.4 million. That's his salary this season. That's crazy. That's a, that's a little much. That's why Hi- uh, Phoenix wanted to get rid of him. Highly speculative <laughs> on that front. Pivoting now. To the Milwaukee Bucks, where Terry Stotts walked away, threw in the keys yesterday, walked away, apparently after an altercation at practice in which Bucks coach Adrian Griffin, here's the other side of the story, or the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. Bucks coach Adrian Griffin apparently told his assistant coaches, I want everybody to huddle up, coaches included. Terry Stotts continued to talk with Damian Lillard. And talk with Giannis. Apparently, according to The Athletic, Adrian Griffin then said to Terry Stotts, I need you here now. Terry Stotts said just a second. 
and it ended up uh, with Adrian Griffin uh, shouting at Terry Stotts, and uh, Terry Stotts there shortly thereafter quit his job as the Milwaukee Bucks assistant. Adrian Griffin speaking to reporters about it. Punch it. Um, you're gonna have to, you know, ask Terry, but uh, you know he's a great coach. Really enjoyed getting to know him. A terrific person, and you know it was his decision, and we just wish him the best. Did it catch you off guard? I know you made the trip, and so like, how did that just sort of come about in the last day, 24? Oh, of course. Uh, I mean, it caught all of us off guard, of course. But again, like we just support him. Uh, he was terrific. I, I learned a lot from him in a very short time. Uh, he's really good uh, at what he does, and. You know, he, he made a decision, a personal decision, and we just have to res- respect it. How do you feel like your relationship was with him? Good. Yeah, we had a good work- working relationship. Not that good. Terry Stotts steps down. He did say uh, good working relationship, John, yeah. not a good relationship. <laughs> uh, stunning resignation. And and I think for Adrian Griffin, like at face value, I want to say, look, you have to be able in the situation that he's in, you've got to be able to accept that there are other people on your staff that that have some knowledge. And I think that he was threatened by Terry Stotts, and certainly Stotts is the most experienced assistant that Griffin would have had on his staff. I think this is a loss for the Bucks, and I think it's a big blow for the head coach, Adrian Griffin. Should not have handled that situation the way that he did, uh, 49-year-old head coach, losing a key assistant. Are, are you selling the Bucks on this news? No, I, I, it won't make me ultimately sell the Bucks because I do think the NBA is such a talent league and the Bucks have all the talent in the world. But I, it is interesting that you know the resignation comes so close to the season. Uh, that yelling match they had or you know, when Adrian Griffin yelled at Terry Sots, it must have been bad because – that's the type of stuff, as a head coach, you can't do that. You can't undress your assistant coach in front of the team like that because the players are going to end up losing respect for either you or that assistant coach. That's something that you got to you know, take care of behind closed doors, and I think that's where the problem lied. And I think Terry Stott saw that and said, you know what, I don't, I'm not a part of this. I don't want to be a part of this guy since he won't respect me. Yeah, yeah but you're, you're a first-year head coach. You just got Damian Lillard. And you're over the moon, and you happen to have Terry Stotts on your staff, who knows Lillard. But he also wants to show who's in charge, though, right? I I think without a doubt, Adrian Griffin was threatened by it. But you you can't be that guy. Like you can't be one of those coaches who is so afraid to let your assistant coaches shine or talk to media. Like I think in the end, this bites Adrian Griffin because I think it's a it's you know losing Terry Stotts is a big blow. Do you think uh, would you downgrade the Bucks a little bit because of this going yes, forward? I would because I think that I don't think Adrian Griffin will win big there. I don't. I think he you know and by win big I mean a championship. Yeah, I mean that's the goal, right? It's the championship yeah. or bust for the Bucks. Because I I think what he should have done like here's the thing here's the difference between an inexperienced 49 year old coach who's never been a head coach and maybe. Terry Stotts, who had coached, you know, more games as a Blazer head coach than anybody, right? So the difference is if Adrian Griffin was upset with the way that Terry Stotts was disrespecting him in front of the team by not listening to him, not huddling up, whatnot, you handle that off to the side. Afterwards, you pull Terry Stotts aside and say, hey, I'm in my first year. I understand you've coached Dame for a decade. 
I really need you to, you know, I re- I really need you to, when I say, hey, let's huddle up, I need you there. And maybe this had happened before, I don't know, but it, it smacks of insecurity to me by Adrian Griffin. I, I do think it's going to hurt the Milwaukee Bucks ultimately. Kendrick Perkins talking about the expectations for Victor Wembenyama, San Antonio star looking formidable before the season starts. Punch it. He could possibly make the all-star team. That's how good he is, and that's how good he's going to do when it, when you look at him. Offensively, he reminds me of a 7-4 version of Kevin Durant. There's nothing that he can't do. You want the mid-range jumper? He got that. You want the handles to the Hensley 3? He got that. Finishing around the basket, he does that extremely well with both hands. And his impact, his impact defensively, I wouldn't be shocked if he make an all-defensive team this year. There's no other yeah. guy in the league like him, and I don't think we've seen nothing like him. Victor Wembanyama is the favorite to win the Rookie of the Year. He's almost even money. Scoot Henderson uh, of the Blazers is second on the board alongside Chet Holmgren, who uh, sat out with an injury. So you got Holmgren, you got Henderson, you got Wembanyama in this thing. Uh, and uh, there's some other prop bets on Wembanyama I want to ask you about, Stephen. The over-under on his point average for the season is 18 and a half. You go over or under? Uh, I would go under on the point total there, point average. I, I I agree with Kendrick Perkins. I think he could be an all-star. I think he could be all-defensive team. I still worry about the scoring a little bit when it comes to the regular season. He is so frail uh, still as the body, but, I mean, he has skills on top of skills and skills we've never seen before. So I think he'll be able to score. I just don't. 18 is a lot uh, for a 19-year-old kid, so I would go under on that. His over/under on rebounds is 8.8. Uh, you know, in Europe last year, he averaged 10.4 rebounds, but that wasn't the NBA. I still think he could be a 10-plus rebound guy in the NBA. I do too. Yeah, I think I would go over on that one. I, I think he's going to be in the right positions. Pop rebounding is all about positioning the NBA, and Popovich will put him in the right spots to get rebounds. If you're not going to pick Wembenyama to win Rookie of the Year, do you go Scoot Henderson or do you go Chet Holmgren or? Do you go somewhere else? I go Scoot because just because of the usage. Scoot, he's going to be the starting point guard for the Trailblazers. It's going to be his team. He's going to get the ball a lot. I, I think Scoot's the guy. Chet's going into a good situation in Oklahoma City where they have a lot of really good young players, and he hasn't proven to stay healthy. So, I, I mean, you know, he's going to be a big part of that team, but they still have Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who is a legitimate NBA superstar. So I, I don't think he's going to get the, the usage as Scoot does, so I think I'd go Scoot over him. Philadelphia Phillies were up 2-0 in the National League Championship Series. The Arizona Diamondbacks at the plate, runner in scoring position in a 1-1 game. Punch it. Kimbrell deals it all one That's into center field. It's down. In the score is Smith. And the Diamondbacks walk off the Phillies in game three. Cattell Marte takes a victory lap. And the Diamond. Diamondbacks needed that one. Series now two games to one. Diamondbacks, Phillies. It feels like it's the Phillies year. Feels like it's the Phillies year. Feels like it's the Phillies time. Lines up for them. But Arizona extending that series and uh, pulling to win within one game. Mike Florio talking about Justin Herbert. Justin Herbert's last outing wasn't great. Here's Florio. Punch it. I just want to see the guy that we saw in that last game of the regular season, that epic with the Raiders and the Chargers, 
where if they would have tied, they both would have made the playoffs, and he was converting all those fourth downs, and he just was possessed, and he was incredible. And I want to see that guy on a regular basis. I don't know where that guy is. And I don't know if it's coaching. I don't know what it is. But I still have visions of that Monday night wide open, Keenan Allen, wide open. You know, the NFL is all about you got to throw it through the window, and the windows are tight. you got a guy wide open for a huge game and you throw it over his head. This guy is being paid a crap load of money. He should be held to a higher standard. We blame everybody around him. I want to see yes. him step up and become the franchise quarterback that we just assume he is with no recent evidence to support that conclusion, all due respect to Justin Herbert. Look, it's great for Florio to say that. I want to see it too, but I don't think... Herbert is the problem with the Chargers. He didn't play his best game against the Dallas Cowboys, but I think when you look at the totality of his career, what Herbert needs is he needs some stability. He needs some um, you know, support around him. He needs what every quarterback in the NFL needs. I think in a lot of ways, I was watching Trevor Lawrence last night, and I see a lot of Justin Herbert in Trevor Lawrence. I mean, they have the same kind of game, and I think they could both have success. And... Just It's just so evident when you see a player who's got all of the tools that are necessary to be successful, you start to wonder, okay, if they're not having success, what is it? And sometimes it's a mental thing. It's a psychological thing. I don't think it's that with Justin Herbert. I think it's support staff. I think it's the fact that you know he's changed coaches from Anthony Lynn to Brandon Staley, changed coordinators, had receivers coming and going. I, I think he, you know there was a stretch last year where I felt like he got comfortable and started to get some continuity. I'd like to see him get back to that. I don't think it has to do with, you know, the the result as much as Mike Florio does. I think it's really easy to say, hey, I want to see, uh, you know, I want to see Steven make his free throws. Well, you have to start talking about the factors that go into why Steven's in a, in a funk and missing his free throws. The one difference, though, John, between Trevor Lawrence and Justin Herbert is in the fourth quarter, Trevor Lawrence, that's where he usually steps his game up. Herbert, statistically, has thrown way more interceptions in the fourth quarter than he has any other quarter. And so I think that's the problem is you want to see Herbert in those big spots make big-time plays. He just hasn't done it yet in his career. Yeah, but I, I also think he's had a stable of receivers who have been hurt in and out. He's had changes as head coach. I just... I, I, I was struck last night by the fact that Trevor Lawrence has got Doug Peterson on the sideline. I don't know if that, like, you know, I looked at that and I was like, gosh, that is such an advantage to have a coach who has been there, who is creative, who isn't afraid to call a fake punt or a weird play, on a, you know, two-point conversion play in a Super Bowl. And, you know, it's he's just got a lot of moxie to him. And I, and I think that's a huge advantage to to a young quarterback. Uh, coming up, uh, we'll talk a little college football. And Michael Penix Jr. speaking out on a podcast. What is he saying? That plus uh, we'll give our picks for the weekend. Leave it here. Hey, Steven. Yeah. Blazers are in first place. This might be the only time we can say that this year. We should just keep saying that next Wednesday. Could they win the opener? Could could they could they be in first place for how many days? How many days they got left? Well, well, you know, last year it was like they were in first place at ten and three, and we're like, well, how much longer? It's like, yeah, a week or two. I, I, you want to give them a week? Yeah, there you go. I, I don't think they win their first two games out of the season. In uh, in first place and uh, looking good right now, undefeated. Uh, they will uh, they'll be there for a little bit, uh, and uh, next Wednesday they open the season. Um, we didn't talk about this, but. Uh, 
But uh, a lot of people talking about the USC-Utah game. We had yesterday on the show Josh Newman of KSL.com in Salt Lake City. But Joel Klatt, who I, I normally don't like totally agree with and i like that like he makes me sometimes think of things i hadn't thought about and sometimes i just think he's off his rocker but joel klatt sees this usc utah game the same way i do and uh it's why i'm picking utah to win the game i know it doesn't sound logical they don't have the best player they are not at home they are not favored home favorites are lethal in the pac-12 conference in winning the game but I still, for some reason, like Utah over USC. And Joel Klatt said this. I get it. Cameron Rising is not going to be on the field. But don't we see the clear deficiencies that have shown up for USC? Doesn't this seem like a large number? USC favored by seven, even at home, based on what we've seen over the last month with the pressure on Caleb Williams, with the inefficiency of the offense last week and even in large stretches of the Arizona game and even in the fourth quarter against Colorado and even by the way at times against Arizona State like this seems odd I like Utah as well for those reasons it's the inefficiencies of USC and I've been wrestling all week like part of it is I've seen Utah beat USC three times in a row and I can't shake what happened last season. I saw it twice up close. Utah just finds a way, right? And, and in both games, it, both games last season, it looked like USC was going to run away with the game. And all of a sudden, Utah made an adjustment. And in particular, I will call your attention to the midseason game that happened in Salt Lake City. It was 43-42 was the final. Utah scored on its final six possessions of the game. They were not stopped. And in fact... On the seventh possession, the, the what would have made the seven possessions in a row, Utah drove the length of the field and fumbled on the five-yard line. Otherwise, it would have been seven possessions in a row that Utah scored. They did a very similar thing in the Pac-12 championship game. They just made an adjustment. Now, what am I banking on in picking the Utes to win this game outright? I'm banking on the fact that Utah's defense is elite. Caleb Williams and USC have looked a little vulnerable. Notre Dame exploited some things in him, and I think Utah's built like Notre Dame and might be better on the defensive side of the ball. And I think Utah will run the football and score on USC. And I I watched Arizona State score on him. I watched Colorado score on him. And I watched uh, now, uh, last week, Notre Dame, which hadn't scored at all, scored on him. So I think Utah's going to score in the 30s. Now, if, if USC somehow puts up 42 points, 38 points in this game, it probably wins. But I really like Utah in seven, Stephen. Are, are you sticking to USC winning the game? I am. I'm sticking to USC to win the game. I can't get there of going, of laying the points, but I think you're right. It, it's just a matter of how many points can Utah score because the, the USC defense isn't very good, but the Utah offense hasn't been you know, dynamite as well. So – you know, it's just a battle of which unit is worse. And, and I could see it going either way, but I think ultimately USC gets the win. But I think, you know, plus seven seems like a lot of points right now to give up if I'm USC, just based off the way that they have looked this season. So, yeah, I'm going to take the points, but I think USC wins this game. Yeah, I keep looking at the points and seven points in this game. And, and I'll go back to this. Cal, you know, Cal managed, uh, you know, excuse me, Utah got 34 on Cal, okay? And I keep thinking, 
statistically, Cal's defense is better than USC in every category. It's a better defense. Not by a lot, but it's better. It's, you know, it's a better defense than what that, that USC has put on the field this season. And, and, I, and I see 34 points put up. If Utah can score 34, I'll take the 7, and I, and I think that's a win. Uh, let's talk about a couple of the other games. Oregon is at home against Washington State. This game tomorrow kicking off at 12.30. Uh, I, I really like Oregon to win this game. Uh, the, you know, we talk about the trend being your friend. We talk about home favorites, uh, which are like 32-3 and three this season in the Pac-12. Uh, and there's something wrong with Washington State. Until I see that fixed, I, I just can't I can't say that they're going to win a game or they're going to make it a game. I think Oregon's going to run away with it, and I think it will be a uh, pretty convincing Oregon victory. There is a The only thing that gives me pause is the potential that Oregon is a little flat. They were flat after the Colorado game in the first half against Stanford. It got shut out in the first quarter. And I, I just wonder, will Oregon be a little emotionally flat against a Washington State team that does not present as uh, sexy a, a you know a, a matchup as they have had in other games this year, like Colorado and Washington, certainly. So I, I like Oregon. I got it forty five twenty. What do you what do you see there? Yeah, I I got Oregon winning the game. I think Washington State. Uh, I'd take the points in this one. I I got it forty to twenty four. Oregon. I think. The thing about Washington State is Oregon hasn't seen a quarterback like Cam Ward. Like, they faced Michael Penix, who's going to stay in the pocket and throw. They haven't faced a guy that's going to run around. And so until I see the Ducks be able to guard that, I'm going to go with that. I think Washington State can score in the first half and keep it somewhat close. Then Oregon, with their talent, ultimately runs away with it. You know, two two scores, but 20 points is a lot. I'm going to take Washington State plus the points. All right. I'm, I'm going to lay the points because I just think, you know, everybody's dropping eight and saying run the ball, and Washington State has not been able to run the ball. So let's see. Can Nikia Watson, you know, get 50 yards in this game? If he does, then maybe Washington State can keep it close. But if they don't, it could be a long day for Washington State. All right, we'll give our picks in the other games coming up. And I'll, I'll play a little Chip Kelly. He joined uh, Wilner and I on the podcast today. It was fantastic and raised some really interesting thoughts. Oregon State on a bye week. I hope Oregon State is uh, catching its breath. Had a uh, commitment today from a uh, four-star recruit that Washington was recruiting. I think that was a good sign. If you're somebody tracking Oregon State, and you know, because I can think for me, I know what I think of Oregon State and where their place is in the college football ecosystem. I think Oregon State knows where it wants to be. It wants to be a Power Five school, but it's a whole other thing when you have recruits who are picking you and saying. I'm a four-star recruit. I have options. I'm going there. So uh, I thought that was an encouraging sign. We'll see how that develops in the uh, in the coming weeks. Chip Kelly. He's an interesting figure. A guy who took Oregon's football program to new heights while he was the coach in Eugene and certainly the coordinator in Eugene. He joined myself and John Wilner today for a podcast interview. Did like a 40-minute interview. And we had uh, we had a lot of questions for him. And Chip Kelly texted me after. He's like, you guys ask great, great questions, whatever. And he's buttering me up, I know. But I think, uh, I think it's really interesting. And I want to share a couple things with you here. And I kind of want to break it down. And we'll do it a little different than we did it on the podcast. I'm going to play a little bit. And I'm going to stop the interview. And I'm going to talk about it. So I hope you bear with me. Keep in mind, too, he's fresh off the practice field. He's on a cell phone, so he's a little muffled. 
And, you know, and he talks fast anyway, so he's one of these guys that's difficult, you know, sometimes to comprehend. But but I, I think it's good enough, and you can kind of hear... You can hear what he's saying. You can you can make out what he's saying. In you know you can follow along and track it. I don't think it's distracting, but I just want you to know right up front he was, you know, about to go through his fast Friday, so to speak. He's out of meetings. He's on the practice field. He's giving us this interview. And one of the questions that was asked to him, and you're going to hear that answer right off the gate, is what did he make of the Pac-12's demise, the Pac-12 disintegrating in early August. And in particular, you know, as a guy who's a Pac-12 guy, how did he feel about it? Here's Chip Kelly. I did, and, and it's sad. You know, I think there's a lot of things wrong with college athletics, um, realignment being one of them. Um, and I just, I, I understand it. It's chase the money, and that's what people are doing, and to support the athletics at the university. It's kind of the administrator's fiduciary responsibility to say, hey, if we get a chance to make $75 million, as opposed to whatever the number was supposed to be, 30 I think you have to do it. But there's consequences to that, you know, and um, it's, I just wish all the smart people in athletics could get in the room and figure this out because I don't think it's that hard, you know. And I've said before, I don't understand I think the problem with the NCAA is they try to put everybody in the same box, and I don't think you should do that because all of our sports are different. So why is football treated like water polo? And they try to do that, and it just doesn't match. And even football at any level, Division three football and Power 5 football is drastically different, um, and it should be run that way, you know. Chip Kelly talking about the differences of college athletics. I think he points something out that we can all see that, you know, the smart people in college athletics are not in the room, right? They haven't figured it out and they are trying to put everybody in the same box. In fact, everybody else is just getting thrown in the same box as football and it really doesn't work. Uh, We went on to ask him more about, you know, does college football need a commissioner? Would he want to be the czar of college football? All of that. Here's Chip Kelly continuing. The model I think is the best model is that Notre Dame is independent in football, but they're in a conference for everything else. I think we should all be independent in football. And our basketball team should play Arizona every year. Our women's softball team should be playing Arizona every year. They shouldn't be playing Rutgers because football has got a better deal. Like, it just doesn't make sense. So, but no one asked my, my opinion. So I just think of these things when I drive in in the morning and I'm by myself. So I have it all mapped out just <laughs> If they ever ask, I'll share. But if not, I want to get ready to be, play Stanford. Were you surprised that when you made those comments several weeks ago, that how how much it blew up, and you know, because it's such a common sense thing, everybody went, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. That makes sense. I didn't know it really blew up, John. I mean, you know me because I don't really, I'm not following the the the, the news feed that everybody else follows. So I get asked questions at press conference. I'll answer them and then. That's probably the extent of it. I've got asked a couple more since then, but nothing big. Um, I did meet with Joe Moglia, who's an amazing human being, who was at Coastal Carolina, but he used to be the CEO of TD Ameritrade. His, uh, his story is an amazing story. Um, and when we played Coastal in our opening game, he came over the day of the game and just wanted to talk. And we talked about a lot of things about this. And Joe's got a lot of good ideas, too. 
but I think people should should talk to people that are involved in it. You know, um, I think if you put Gene Smith, Greg Sankey, David Shaw, and Chris Peterson in the room, they could figure this whole thing out. Did you have anybody at the NCAA, anybody at the CFP, reach out at all and say, "Hey, tell us more about this," or or ask you anything, or is it just reporters and and other interested parties? Just reporters. I haven't, I haven't, talked, I haven't heard from anybody else. Gosh, I would think they would be interested in. Hey, yeah, let's continue that conversation. If that's a healthy conversation, that would be great for the ecosystem. And I think that's probably some of the frustration yeah, with that, fans. That's where the frustration I think comes in because I don't think, I don't think it's that hard, and I think you can still exist, and everybody can can make out. And I think if you presented a sixty-four team whatever the number of Power 5 teams there are now, and presented it like an NFL model, like there's divisions, so there's a West Coast division, just like the NFC West right now is the 49ers, the Seahawks, the Cardinals, and the Rams. Just make it the two Washingtons, the two Ohios, Northern Cal and Southern Cal, and we're that 18 division. And then there's an East division, then there's a North, there's a South, there's a Southeast. And then the great part for football is we would all play our conference. We play seven games in our conference. And then you'd cross over against a different division every year. So everybody in the West is playing everybody in the South this year. And then everybody in the West is playing everybody in the East the following year. So you'd get those inter-rivalry matchups. I mean, inter, uh, intersectional matchups that people always want at the beginning of the season. But you still have to really win your division, which would be you'd have to be the best team out of the, the eight teams in the West. And what it has to do is, if my point would be, is you took all 64 of those teams, and went to the television networks and said, this is our product, I guarantee we'd all get a better TV deal than we have right now. Yeah. So instead of the Pac-12 has this, the Big Ten has this, the SEC has this, you go as a whole thing. I think the, the it, it wouldn't be as big as the NFL contract, but the NFL contract's really big, and they have 32 teams. So you're, you're, you, can, you can generate more games each week because you have 64 teams as opposed to 32 teams. And then take all that money, share it with everybody, I guarantee each school would make at least $75 million. And then that money goes back to the school to run all the other sports. And all the other sports should be in conferences. There should be a Pac-12 volleyball champ. There should be a Pac-12 softball champ. There should be a Pac-12 basketball champ. They don't need to travel to the other side. You know, Cal doesn't have to have an away game at Boston College and then play the next week at Miami. Like, that's just that's silly. All because of football money? Well, just take all the football money, put it together, our game is different than every other game, too, because we only play once a week. So travel for us isn't what travel is for everybody else. Chip, this sounds like your acceptance speech for college football czar. Oh, no. No. <laughs> no. One, one thing I think every human being needs to be is self-aware. So I'm really good with uh, knowing what I can do. Now, I am great at suggestions. So if anybody wants them, I'll give them But if they don't want them, I'm, I'm fine, too. So... Um, but there are some people that truly, truly care about this sport um, and want it to be what I think it could potentially be, where it would benefit everybody. Because if every school out there made $75 million today, that benefits every sport in the athletic department. Everybody has a better situation. You've answered your fiduciary responsibility as an athletic department by using football as your, as your revenues to generate that. But you still protected everything else. And I don't... I don't see a downside to it. It's just you have to kind of look outside the box a little bit and just separate football from the other sports. And do you, 
Do you the, think college- the, the gut part about it is Notre Dame has already done it. Notre Dame has an independent TV contract. They're not in the ACC for football. They have a great situation. Just get Jack Swabber to tell everybody how we did it and, and then just say, hey, Jack, instead of you negotiating for one team, you're negotiating for 64. I think people would pony up some cash. Do you think the sport needs a commissioner, a Roger Goodell? Yes, I do. I really do. And I don't know if it's one or if it's more than one, but I think there needs to be a committee, and I also think that committee needs to have um, authority. We need to be able to um, not just a de facto puppet regime, but this person has to have the ability to legislate. This person has to have the ability to enforce um, so that it's, it's all equitable. And all 64 teams, you know, every decision that's made in the NFL is made for the NFL is for the good of the NFL. Now, it may, there's times where it can impact an individual team negatively, but you're making the decision for the majority and for the good of the game. And I, I think it's, it's, it's very much needed. And I think there's a lot of really qualified guys out there that could, that could have a hand in it and really care and would love to have a hand in it. There's Chip Kelly speaking on the podcast talking about fixing college athletics. I love it. Just some bullet points. Uh, he says all the smart people should get in a room and figure it out. He doesn't think it's that hard. And he thinks the problem is that the NCAA wants to put all the sports, all the schools, all the divisions, Division One, Two, Three, Power 5 football, badminton, track and field, whatever the sport may be, wants to put them all in the same classification, and they don't fit. He also thinks the sport needs a commissioner or a group of commissioners or a committee that need, that can have authority. Not a puppet regime, he says, and I love that. I think he's right there. There isn't anybody acting on behalf of college football, right? You've got television companies that are coming in, and they have wrested the control from the conference commissioners, uh, and they are making the decisions. You have um, you know, the Big Ten acting on in its best interest. You have the SEC acting in its best interest. The whole ecosystem is is not right, and and uh, you know it. And he talks about the model that Notre Dame has laid out because you know it's not like you're asking college athletics to do something that hasn't been done before. You're just saying, hey, Notre Dame's done this. Notre Dame plays independent in football. It negotiated its own TV deal with NBC, and then it participates in a conference, the ACC, for everything else. So he believes. Follow that model. Go talk to Jack Swarbrick at Notre Dame and say, hey, how did you do this? How did you negotiate that? Because UCLA should not be playing Rutgers in softball. They should be playing Arizona. They should be playing Oregon, Oregon, you know, in Washington State, in Washington. And um, it doesn't make any sense. And Power 5 football, the 64 teams that are in it, including Washington State and Oregon State, are a thing. And there's there's less in common with you know the 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 basketball program at Rutgers than there is like the the football program at Oregon State, right? They're they're just the football program at Oregon State is a closer approximation of what is going on in Power Five conference football, and the basketball program at Rutgers or the softball team at Michigan, they don't need to be dragged around the country. They're not revenue generating sports. He's making a lot of sense here. Um, you know, we went on to talk about, you know, what he learned from the Navy SEALs, uh, what he would change about college football. And, uh, you know, and we talked a little bit about sleep. And I mentioned this off the top of the show. 
I actually think I'm going to sleep better after this conversation with Chip Kelly. Here he is, uh, uh, part two of uh, that interview. And, and again, we went for 40 minutes. You're, you're going to hear another couple minutes of this, and, and then I'll leave it to you if you want to go hear the rest of it. But uh, really interesting conversation. You always brought speakers in, and you still do, to talk with your team. And I know that you talked about bringing some of the Navy SEALs in or going to see them train. What did you, what did you get out of that personally, watching those guys or listening to those guys? Uh, perspective, admiration. Um, you know, I think they, they have dedicated their lives to serving others. You know, when there's a sound of gunfire, probably the human inclination is to run from it, and these people run to it. The sacrifice they make, and some of them the ultimate sacrifice they make for their family members, for their brothers, for their country, is something that's amazing. But just how they work on a daily basis, the discipline that they live their lives with, and I think because they're doing it for something that's bigger than them, and they understand that, uh, I think is, is a life lesson that all of us can learn. So, um, we actually have a Navy shit on staff with us right now, um, and we get to kind of pick his brain on a daily basis, and he's been amazing, you know, just in one-on-ones with our players. So I think sometimes speakers are great, um, but sometimes that wears off. You know, so I think if we can continue to emphasize the point of service and using your platform as a user of football player to help better other people's situations is, is something that's really important and one of our cornerstones here. Um, and Pops does a great job of kind of getting that message across to our players. What's on your playlist? Do you listen to music? Um, yeah, I'm more of a just a radio guy because I don't like – I like change. So I wouldn't listen to – five straight songs by this person. I would listen to, I want one from here, one from here. And I also want it to be random, so I don't know what's coming. Better vacation, Oregon Coast or Central Oregon? All right, I'll be honest, I've never vacationed in either. I've been to both. Um, but I'm an ocean guy, so I would say, I would say, um, I would say the coast. All right, but best beach you've ever been on then? Best beach I've ever been on? Yep. Newcastle Beach in Newcastle, New Hampshire, right in the front of my house. You're appointed czar of college football and can change one aspect of it instantly in dictatorial style. What would you change? <laughs> no night games. <laughs> Amen. College football should be played on Saturday afternoon on every campus in this country, like they used to in the old days, the tradition in history. That's how I feel. And again, going back to being a morning person, I want to, as Nick Aliotti would say, I want to get up, touch our toes, and smash. I don't want to wait around all day for, <laughs> because that's the time window slot that we have. Let's, let's get up and play ball. What's on your nightstand? What are you reading? There's nothing on my nightstand. I go home. When I go home and go to bed, John, I go to bed. Like, <laughs> one thing I'm really, really good at, and I've spent a lot of time researching it and studying it, is I am a great sleeper. <laughs> so when I go to my bed, I am going to bed. Like I'm not going to my bed and saying, "Hey, I'm going to read this. I'm going to, I'm going to take my time and, you know, kind of work my window." And I can fall asleep anywhere. I'll fall asleep today, before the plane takes off, because I can sleep on a plane. So I know I have a map from LAX to FFO, and it's about an hour and 25 minutes. So I know I got an hour nap coming up here, um, from two o'clock to three o'clock. Okay. And I'll be out. Okay. So, there's nothing on my nightstand from a reading standpoint because I'm going to bed. 
All right, so give us all some help. People who are scrolling through their phones as they're about to go to sleep, that's the absolute wrong thing oh, to do, right? I mean, That's the worst thing for, worst thing for you because of the UV, the lights that come off your phone. If you're going to do that, you need to have a blue light blocker because if not, the body is set by circadian rhythms, and if it gets night, if it gets light, it thinks it's supposed to be up. The human body, we were built a long time ago that when the sun's out, we're up. Sun's up, we're up. Sun's down, we're down. So we with all the artificial light that's been invented, that's what screws up a lot of screen time, screws up a lot of people's um, ability to fall asleep at night because of that. So you need to get investments. Not very expensive. And you get some little blue light blockers if, if you have to um, look at your phone. But it's also not a bad thing to put your phone down. I think people need to learn that lesson. Not a bad thing to put your phone down, says Chip Kelly. Um, Stephen, your takeaways from that, uh, I thought it was a really interesting conversation. I know the, the phone, it sounds like he's talking through a pillow, but uh, we're getting him right on the practice field at UCLA this morning, right before they're taking their walk through their Fast Friday, they call it, and then they uh, jump on a plane to Stanford. Uh, what were your takeaways there? It's interesting how structured he is. Like, he talks about the phone thing, and like he can't have that. He can't have what be looking at a phone before bed. But at the same time, when he listens to music, it's got to be random. Like so, it's like structure, but then chaos at the same time. And it's con- like controlled chaos, and that's kind of how his offenses used to be when they were at Oregon when he first came along. And I feel like that's he's always trying to keep people guessing, and it kind of goes into his coaching style. So that's that was kind of the really interesting part I thought that he had is that. He has so many you know, rules, but at the same time, he doesn't want it to be the same way every single time. Like He always is adjusting, always is adapting, and I think that's why he's lasted so long in the coaching game is that he's always looking to evolve and become a better coach year after year. Yeah, I think you know he's an interesting study because on one hand, you know, he's studied sleep, he's, he's locked in, he's structured, as you say, but um, it, it, you know, he's not like a bastion of physical fitness either like he's not like a navy seal on a physical fitness front and you would think like he's got that education he understands it but i just i think he's visionary and i think he is he thinks big and he thinks differently and he's super smart and i think that's part of why he's been successful as a coach and in fact it might be like 80 percent of why he's been successful as a football coach he challenged conventional thinking he did things that were outside the box he you know, looked for angles and loopholes in NCAA rules and how fast can we snap the ball and what can we do with scouting services. And he was always just kind of toeing the line and pushing the envelope. And I think it made him really good and changed the game. And now the game has adapted a little bit. You know, he talked later in the interview about the fact that college football has, you know, basically shortened games by having the clock run after first down and not stopping the clock until there's two minutes to go in the game. They've taken plays out of the game. And, and he raises the idea. He says, you know, it's the first sport where they've said, hey, you're scoring too many points. We need to we need to limit the uh, amount of plays that you can run. And, you know, we all know what it's about. Television wanted more commercial time. And Chip says they went about it the wrong way. If they want more commercial time, just build in a two-minute warning into college football. Like, institute the two-minute warning. Put a commercial break there. Um, you know, institute other TV timeouts. You didn't need to shorten the game and shorten the amount of offense by taking plays out of the game. And that's what they've essentially done. They've, you know, taken a, a series out of the first half and a series out of the second half, and they said the game's going to be shorter by two series, two full series. 
And that's what, you know, the college rule change has done. But I just think it speaks to the fact that he thinks differently. He thinks bold. I don't know why all of college football isn't sitting up in its chair listening to him right now because I, I think he takes a very complex issue and he simplifies it. And I think it takes a lot of brains to do that. I hope they listen to him. Anna's popping into the studio. We got so much to talk about. Five o'clock, we'll have the five at five and a whole bunch more. Leave it here. Oregon offensive coordinator Will Stein was asked what traits he values the most in a quarterback. Here's what he said. Accuracy is number one for me in terms of like trait of like throwing the ball. Like I've been around guys that have really big arms but can't hit the backside of the barn, you know. And I've also played with guys or seen guys that might not have the strongest arm but throw on time, great ball placement, allow the receivers to run after the catch, throw a catchable ball. So I think that's really important to me in terms of high school evaluation. And then in today's world, today's game, what's really important for me is are they mobile? Mm-hmm. You know, are they able to get out of trouble, escape the pocket, use their legs as a weapon to go get third downs? Because we all know like you can dial up some great third downs, but defenses can dial up some great pressures too. Yeah. If your guys can escape and then go run. And you see Bo too for us, third downs using his legs as a weapon. Like mm-hmm. that's really critical to me in, in terms of evaluating. Yeah. Doesn't mean they have to be Lamar Jackson, but they have to be mobile and creative enough yeah. with their feet. That's Will Stein, Oregon offensive coordinator, talking about the traits that he values in a quarterback. He's talking about Bo Nix and and others. Anna's popped into the studio. Stephen, you're here as well. I want to I want to do something a little bit different with this. Stephen, I want you and I, and maybe Anna, if you want to chime in, to talk about the traits we value in a coach. Okay, what makes a great coach? Because Stein's evaluating quarterbacks. Anna. I want you to evaluate what you value in a restaurant. Oh. Can we do that? It's a little abstract. Okay. We're going to do it at the same time. Okay? Okay. See how this goes. Okay. Okay. Let's go, Stephen. On the coaching front, I want a coach who is going to have command of his team and the respect of his team. And I think those are two different things. I think having the respect in your locker room is important. It takes a certain personality to galvanize a room that, let's face it, is a melting pot of socioeconomic background, uh, religion, race, experience. Like, you, there isn't a more diverse place than a college football locker room. Believe me. I've been in there, and I go, wow, this is the greatest thing because you have all of this in one place trying to come together and work towards a common goal. And that's you need the respect and you need the command of your team as a coach. What else do you need as a great coach? I was going to go with leadership, uh, the leadership quality. It kind of goes along with the respect and command thing, but you need to have leadership no matter what it is, whether it's a vocal leader. You know, Some guys, you look at Dan Lanning. He goes out there, and he's going to motivate and be a leader by pumping up his team. Then you look at Jonathan Smith. He's not out there yelling. He's not out there screaming. But you know that he is, a, he is the leader of that, of that program, and everyone does respect him. I think it's very important to have that leadership because it also goes along with your coordinators, right? Like, we talk about getting out of the way and letting your coordinators work. We've been talking about Terry Stotts, you know, Adrian Griffin not showing the leadership of trusting his coaches. I think it's very important to have the leadership of being able to say, you know what, I trust my assistant coaches. I trust them to do their job. And we're all here for the same goal, and that's the win. So I, I think leadership for me, and, and that's also in the press conferences, you got to be good out there. You got to be a, lead, a leader out there, show everyone how to do it. So I, I think leadership for me, most important thing. 
You have to have mastery of your craft. You have to know the game. You have to have um, basic knowledge. You have to be able to manage, I guess, as a college coach and navigate NIL and the transfer portal and manage your boss in the athletic department and certain boosters and do media interviews. There's a lot of things that go outside of of you know the football job, but there's a basic competency and a leadership and a knowledge and a command of the locker room that are just fundamentally necessary. Now, Anna, what do you value in a restaurant? You know, maybe I'm a simple person, but the things that I value in a restaurant are the same things that I would value in a coach. Go on. So I like a restaurant that is innovative and creative and smart, Mm -hmm. that does a little something different. Uh, I I like that in a coach. Uh, I I can appreciate a restaurant that has consistency. So if you go and you have a great meal, the next time you go, it's not a really terrible meal. Like obviously, that's a trait yeah. that is really important. And for when, a coach. You, when you order a dish you like, it comes the second time you're there. You order the same thing, it comes out the same way. Correct. That's why Starbucks wins. It's the beauty of Starbucks. Uh, ownership. I uh, like taking ownership when you screw up. Like, there's nothing worse. For anybody that's been a server, you know that you're going to make a mistake. We're all human. But there's nothing worse than, like, not owning your mistake and, like, I'm sorry or just acknowledging that you made the mistake goes a long way. Same goes for coaches. I think the uh, that there are similarities between any business, but in particular, when you look at a, a restaurant, is an easy metaphor. Yeah. I've often said that you can tell just by walking into the restaurant, like, five seconds inside it's the malcolm gladwell blink mm-hmm. book like yeah. you know something's wrong when you, five seconds says you're into the restaurant right it's empty no one's in there it's a friday night there's not a soul there you got a problem there's no not even an employee anywhere to be seen you have a problem right and so i think is the same things can be said of a football program it takes you like you know a quarter in the first game of the season to know something's not right with a lot of these teams, like you could tell pretty early on, hey, uh, they got a problem. They have a deficiency of talent or, gosh, they've had four illegal procedure calls in the first half. Like there's not very disciplined. This is a team that, you know, has a lot of personal fouls. Look at the penalties piling up. So I, I think there are definitely parallels between leadership and the creativity. And I do think the same things you value in a restaurant, you value in a coach. Is it well, be- along those? Go ahead. I was going to say, is it bad that, like, in a restaurant, I kind of, for me, it's it's all about the result. Like, it's got to just be the food. Is the food good? And that's going to make me want to go back. Like, that, if I can do that. Can the coach win? It's not yeah. bad. Yeah. Because the coach, <laughs> ultimately, yeah, ultimately the coach can be just a, uh, you know, he can be a mess. A person can be a mess as a human being, can be a mess, a bad dresser. <laughs> can be awful with boosters. You can't win conference titles. And if That's they what I win mean. conference championships, people go, well, he's eccentric, right? It's Yeah, but that, all, that also speaks to, like, the culture and the atmosphere, which, uh, you know, obviously atmosphere in a restaurant is highly important when you walk in, you know. Uh, but I think in along the same lines, coaches have a lot of power, probably the most power, over the culture of their program. What is that program about? Yeah, and that's why this whole thing with the Michigan sign stealing, it, it, it doesn't fly for me. That Jim Harbaugh is saying he had no knowledge of what was going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know these coaches. I've interviewed Harbaugh. I've I you know, I've interviewed a lot of these coaches and I know them and I've spent time around them. They know everything about everything. Chip Kelly pretends 
that he doesn't read what's going on. He doesn't have Twitter, whatnot. I can tell you, not long after that podcast posted this morning, and I tweeted it out, it was almost immediate where he texted me and said, hey, thanks for having me on. I had a really good time. Yes, good question. And I was like, why did he text right after I posted? Because he he's following. He's twatching. He's not tweeting. He's watcher. He's a watcher on He's, Twitter. Did you say twatcher? He's twatcher. Just be careful what you say there. <laughs> wow. Okay. He's a twatcher. Um, Stephen mentioned leadership, but I, I think part of a, a big part of leadership is also just empowering the people that you work with. So, like, mm. you can't have a head chef in a restaurant who doesn't ultimately believe in and doesn't like micromanage everybody else who's on the line because you have to be able to trust that the people the sous chef like the bus boy the dishwasher that everybody who is in their role is doing it uh, at a maximum capacity to their best ability and in the same way like you tell me John you've obviously interviewed more coaches than any of us the coaches that are micromanagers do they win or are the winners the people who are looking at the horizon and who are visionary? Let, let's there's there's multiple ways to do it, but let's not mistake being a micromanager for the person has attention to detail. There's two; those are two yeah. different things. They're not necessarily the same thing. Yeah, uh, a micromanager is not going to be at their best ever because they're going to be micro trying to control and micromanage every assistant, everything that's happening in the program. I think Mario Cristobal is a great example of a micromanager. Really? He is managing the offensive coordinator while being the head coach. Mm -hmm. He's managing everything. He's managing and got control of every element of the program and to some extent probably doesn't trust that others will do it as well as he will. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a, it's a detriment to him. And I think, you know, case in point, kneel down. You know, I don't, I don't believe that the coordinator didn't want to kneel down there. I think Mario Cristobal wanted to run the ball at the end of that game. And I, and I you know, he has control over every element of his program. And people will say, oh, he has, he's detail-oriented. No, he's controlling. He's maniacal mm -hmm. and controlling to a fault. And I think sometimes when you're that way, if you're a micromanager, you're not letting your good people work. Terry yeah. Stotts, 13 years as a head coach in the NBA, is in Milwaukee. He's at a shoot-around. The Milwaukee Bucks head coach, Adrian Griffin, is in his first season as a head coach. He's never been a head coach. He is. He says to the players, huddle up, and he says to the coaches, I need you to huddle up. Terry says, I need a, I need a minute. I'm talking to Dame and Giannis about something. He's coaching them. Mm -hmm. And Adrian Griffin sees that as a threat yeah. and a sign of disrespect. And he barks at Stotts. There's a back and forth. Stotts leaves later that day, says, I'm, I'm throwing the keys in. I, I ain't work for this guy. Because he knows it's going to be a problem all season long. To me, that is a big red flag for Adrian Griffin. Because mm. I know Terry Stotts. He's not there trying to take Adrian Griffin's job. Right. But Griffin's threatened by him. And he's micromanaging him. And you're never going to get the best out of your people if you're a micromanager. But you want an attention to detail. Yeah. And you also want there somebody. You want somebody who's going to hire great people. Terry Stotts as a hire was great. Now, I, I sort of suspect that it was somebody in the Bucks general manager position or maybe in the ownership ranks who said, we got a first-year head coach. We need to have an experienced yeah. assistant with him. Right. And Adrian Griffin probably didn't want that. Probably didn't want Terry Stotts there. So you got to hire good people. You have to have enough confidence in yourself to not micromanage them, let them work, let them flourish, let them make you look smart. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, I think good coaches do that. But Jonathan Smith is a great example of that. What about Jim Mah- Yeah. What about Dan Lanning, though, on the other hand? He trusted his coaches, and it made him look stupid by going for it on fourth down. Does he, is he going to change the way he goes about it? If he, if he decides I don't know if he p- did trust his coaches, though. Did, you know, do you know, was Will Stein saying, I want to go for it, or was that Dan Lanning? I kind of think it was Lanning. Okay, because I was going to say, what, it, you know, this week, if it's a fourth and two and they decide to punt, does that show that he doesn't show trust in Will Stein or trust in the players? I mean, is that... No. Well, I mean, I mean, you could you could spin the trust thing two ways. I think you could have said, "Oh, he really trusts his offense," or you could say he didn't trust his defense. That's why he didn't, you know, he didn't punt the ball at the end of the game. Like, I think you can look that both ways. I actually think Dan Lanning going for it was more of just Dan Lanning going, "I am a, I'm doubling down in Vegas. I'm splitting eights. I'm hitting a sixteen. I'm going, you know, yeah, that's just his personality, and I think it really helps him in recruiting." And maybe, you know, 10 years from now, he'll be a little different. Maybe he will settle down a little bit and learn a little bit. Like, I, one of the text messages I got after the game came from Chip Towers, the beat reporter for Georgia football who covers, you know, football for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He covers Georgia. He texted me after the game, and he said, hey, tell your guy it's okay to kick a field goal. Like, but I also think there's just a growth curve of a, of a young head coach. you got to get burned a couple times. And, you know, and the other thing is, I get what Lanning was trying to do there. And if he gets one of those fourth downs, everybody's like, oh, wow, stones, that's so awesome. You know, look at him. He had guts. He went for it. But I I think he has, he learns from that a little bit. But I think the better example of trusting the people around you comes from another guy who's a bit of a gunslinger. It's Jonathan Smith. The criticism of Jonathan Smith last season and the season before was, he was always going for it on fourth down. He was fake punting when he didn't have to. Mm-hmm. He onside kicked this year, and it blew up in his face. Cal recovered it and almost ran it back for a touchdown. Mm-hmm. Like, he does that stuff, too, and nobody points it out. Why? Because we all sort of look at him, and we see him as understated and calm. But I think down deep, Jonathan Smith's got some gunslinger in him, too. And he knows, situationally, field goals and playing it safe are not the way to play in today's college football. It's a different game now. But Jonathan Smith, what he does really well, and I, I think coaches could learn from this, he trusts his coordinators. He trusts his run game coordinator, Jim Mahalchek. He trusts Trent Bray on the defensive side of the ball. You can tell. He trusts Brian Lindgren on offense. He has hired good people. He has retained them. He has advocated for them and advocated for them getting raises when you know when he didn't get a raise. One year he went in and all of his coordinators got a bump in pay. Mm-hmm. He puts good people around him, and he lets them work. There's genius in that. You know, Oregon State's got some disadvantages, but Jonathan Smith has found an advantage because nobody leaves. His assistant coaches don't leave to take other jobs because, unlike Terry Stotts in Milwaukee, his assistant coaches feel empowered. They feel like they're part of it. It's it's genius. I think organizationally, um, we can all learn from that. Like we've all had that micro manager manager <laughs> that we've worked for. Like we've all managed up, and anyone who's been in that situation knows it's almost impossible to operate because you feel like you've been lobotomized. You know, your manager doesn't think that you have a brain to think for yourself and make decisions, and and then you're just hamstrung. You can be paralyzed by indecision because you're not really trying to make the best decision. You're just trying to make the decision that's going to please your manager. And more often than not, in an organizational setting, 
that is not going to produce the best result. It's crippling. You know, it's paralysis. And you can see it. I, I, I think it plagues Mario Cristobal more than any coach that I've seen and covered recently. Hmm. That he doesn't, I think Jim Moorhead, he'd never say this, but I suspected he was not very happy being the coordinator under Mario Cristobal. And I think Mario, uh, Marcus Arroyo only did it because he, you know, he was a young coordinator and he knew it was a stepping stone to a coaching job. But, you know, we saw when, when Marcus Arroyo left, everybody went, oh, the offense is going to open up. Nope. It was the same offense. They run on first down, run on second down, pass on third down if it was five yards or more. And otherwise, they're running on third down, too. And that, that was just kind of Mario Cristobal's mentality. And I think uh, Dan Lanning's, you know, the thing that Dan Lanning needs to be careful of is Oregon does turn into a little bit of a stepping stone job for assistant coaches. Mm-hmm. There's more turnover there because it's coaches who see an opportunity, they go be a coordinator at Oregon, then they can go be a head coach somewhere. And I think Lanning is really going to have to be careful about just getting used like that with Kenny Dillingham and maybe, a, you know, Will Stein. I don't know what Will Stein, how long he'll stay or whatnot. But, you know, at some point, Dan Lanning may want to look at an older coordinator who isn't looking for that upward mobility necessarily. is just looking for a place where he can go teach and coach and, you know, inherit all that great talent that Tosh Lapoy and Dan Lanning are recruiting. Mm-hmm. And just recruit and coach those guys. You know, mm-hmm. that's what Oregon needs. They need somebody in that staff who is just going to be happy being a coach. And and if you don't have that, then you got a bunch of guys that are, you know, trying to climb the ladder. And I don't think that necessarily works. Leave it here. It's more than one way to win. We're going to find out uh, how successful Oregon can be. Ultimately, I think there's a, uh, you know, I, I think there's a real thirst in the Oregon fan base to see progress this season under Dan Lanning and what would progress be he won 10 games last year in his first season Uh, I think you know obviously getting to the Pac-12 championship game would be a big step forward Oregon State wants to do the same damn thing Oregon State's got its eyes on the prize this is going to be a wild finish to the Pac-12 season we are in week eight the biggest game this week on the schedule is probably Utah at USC in week nine, uh, some big matchups as well, and probably the biggest one there is maybe Oregon at Utah. That is, uh, that's on the horizon. Uh, in week ten, it gets really dicey as you've got um, Washington USC in week ten. That's going to be a huge football game. Um, in week eleven, you have Washington Utah. And you have Oregon-USC still ahead. In Week 12, it's Oregon State in Washington and USC and UCLA. Uh, That is in Week 12. And uh, finally, in Week 13 of the regular season, you have Oregon-Oregon State. You have um, Washington-Washington State. And, uh, and, you know, obviously Colorado's at Utah, but that's not as big a game anymore. But, Stephen... What's the biggest game of the Pac-12 season that is yet to be played? Maybe after this weekend, in your mind. It is going to be week 12, and it's going to be in the state of Oregon, in Corvallis. Washington versus Oregon State. Hmm. I think that is an elimination game for the Pac-12 title game. Because I think Oregon State is going to win their games leading up to that point, have the bye this week, then at Arizona, at Colorado, at home to Stanford. I think they're going to be 9-1 and headed into that Washington game. 
I kind of think Washington will have one loss somewhere, whether that's to USC or to Utah going into that mm. Oregon State game. So I think that both teams are going to go at that game with one loss, both looking to get to you know the Pac-12 title game, but a loss in that situation, you go to two losses, I think it's an elimination game. I, I think that's the biggest game not yet played leading forward. And it, it's wild to think that because both those teams, I think, with one loss, both have a chance to make the college football playoff. So I think it's an elimination game for the college football playoff. I think it's an elimination game for the conference. I think that game could be huge uh, in Corvallis. Yeah, I think anytime you have a good team, a contender going on the road, I think you got to sit up and you got to pay attention. Like Utah's going to USC this week. Pay attention to that game. Oregon's going to Utah in week nine. Pay attention to that game. Washington having to go to Corvallis. You mentioned that one in week 12. That's a big game. Um, how about uh, Washington having to go to USC in week 10? Like, there's a lot of big games. But the one that I have circled, i got to be honest with you, I don't blame you for picking Washington and Oregon State because that, that's going to be a hell of a game. But for me, it's the Civil War. I think just like your Week 12 game, I think the Civil War is going to be an elimination game. Now, do you think that the teams that get to the Pac-12 championship, do you think it's possible a team with two conference losses gets there? Or is two conference losses basically elimination in your mind? I think two is elimination in my mind. I think that we have the upper tier of Washington, Oregon State, and uh, Oregon. Oregon. Yeah, and then I also think with USC, I know they got blown out by Notre Dame, but John, they're undefeated in the conference. Like we still have to consider them a real threat to get to the Pac-12 title game. So I, I think two losses, and it's going to be tough with those four teams to not, you know, to get in there, sneak in there with those two losses. So I, I think two losses, you're out. And when I look at the Pac-12 standings in football, I literally draw a tier now where I just go, okay, if you if you have two losses, you're out of the race. It means uh, Arizona, UCLA, Washington State. Colorado, Cal, Stanford, Arizona State, out. So right now, teams with no losses, USC, Washington. And by the by the way, I don't think USC's getting to Vegas. And, you, you look at USC's USC schedule, it's Utah at home, then Cal, Washington, Oregon, UCLA. I mean, if they lose two of those games, I think they're out. But I think that they could win. They could lose one of those games. I don't think they're necessarily out of it yet. I think they were they're vulnerable this week. I think they're vulnerable almost every week. That's the problem with if them. If they get is, by this week, then they end the season with Washington, Oregon, UCLA. Then then you have to consider them a real threat if they win this week. Yeah, I I I think the the Washington game's interesting to me because you know I think that could go either way. Oregon I think could go either way. Although I give Oregon a huge advantage there, and I actually think UCLA could beat them in week twelve. You know, even though the game's at SC, I think UCLA could beat them. The problem with USC getting into the Pac-12 championship game is it's the thing we talked about at the beginning of the year. USC has two buys this season. They're the only Pac-12 team with two buys because they played a Week 0 game. They have a bye in Week 13. They will have a week off after playing UCLA where they will sit and watch, and they'll essentially have a bye if they make the Pac-12 championship game. Hell, I'd root against them just for that if you're a Pac-12 fan. All right, the 5 at 5 is coming up. Anna will join us to uh, reel off not necessarily the five biggest stories in the world. What are those stories? Stick around and find out. Plus, uh, we'll be talking about an event going on this weekend. It has nothing to do with college football. Leave it here. Anna's here. If you've been following this week, it's been a tough week for Anna. She, uh, she got a traffic ticket. She went to traffic court only to find out that she can't plead no contest to a ticket and pay it. And then try to go to court and fight it. 
<laughs> Been a rough week. <laughs> I can't believe you did that. I can. Sadly, I can. It's one of these things where I was working. She said, I'm going to court. She's all dressed up. She's got her blazer on. She had all her notes she was going to take in front of the judge. Exhibits. Bringing her dad in there. Bringing her 77-year-old Taiwanese dad, dragging him into court. I was just taking care of my dad. And uh, she gets over there to court, and pretty soon, it felt like it was like 90 seconds. I heard the garage door opening again. I was like, what the heck is going on? Is she back already? That must have been fast. Maybe the officer didn't show up in court. Mm-hmm. And it got dismissed. So what happened? Oh, uh, turns out I already paid the ticket. Did you not remember? I had, no, I didn't remember. Really? Yeah, I'm telling you. Wow. Just, mind is just going, just going. Now it's been a rough week. Yeah. No tickets today, though, huh? No, not today. Good for you. Yet. Day's not done. You should be like one of those businesses that has how many days it's been since they had an accident (laughs) on the site. It's been this many days since Anna had a traffic ticket. Slap that on a bumper sticker. There you go. All right. We're, uh, we have the 5 at 5 coming up. The five biggest stories in sports. The 5 at 5. The number one story as Anna sees it is... Not a bad career, right? Four-time NBA champion Andre Iguodala announces his retirement. Played with the Warriors and the 76ers. He's had a 19-year-long career. He said he's hanging up his sneakers. He says, uh, interestingly, family is important to him. He's got a son that's 16 and two girls. He wants to see them grow up in these important years. It's good for him, right? This is a good thing. Is it bad that uh, I thought he had retired already? Is that... (laughs) Is that a bad thing? 19 years. That's a long time. What's his legacy? I I want to say this. Steven, tell me if I'm right here. He was one of these guys that you need on your team to win a championship. He played smart, played the right way, didn't need the ball all the time, did a lot of the dirty work, defended, rebound, set screens. He's not Steph Curry. He's not even Draymond Green. He's not Klay Thompson, but he's a necessary part. He was kind of like Tayshaun Prince on the Detroit Pistons. Do I have that right? That's a a good... uh good comp there. I could argue that Andre Udala is actually like a Hall of Fame player because he could be the best on-ball defender in this generation. Right? Like, you know, Scottie Pippen was that guy in his generation. I think this generation it could be Andre Udala where he was so good defensively that you're right. Any good team loves to have that guy. So, I, you know, I could argue it. I don't know that he will make the Hall of Fame. I don't think he will, but uh, I mean, yeah, one of the best defenders I've ever seen uh, in my life. Here's uh, Andre Iguodala after one of the championships. It's like really game-ready type practices, so I think it's gonna, uh, it's really gonna show in the games once I, you know, get acclimated with everything. But uh, the environment in here is really good. It's a winning environment, and you can see it right away. Winning environment. He was a uh, culture keeper, so to speak. Maybe he'll get some consideration for uh, some honors after his career. He, he does have a Finals MVP. There you go. Number two. Dick Vitale, no no signs of cancer, he says, in planning a return to broadcasting. And there's a date, November 28th. He wants to return to the announcer's chair on November 28th for the Miami-Kentucky game. Speaking of uh, Hall of Famer, he is 84 years old. 
He was diagnosed with melanoma back in 2021. He's had multiple surgeries to get rid of the disease. He had lymphoma, had to do treatment, but then was declared cancer-free last summer. And he's going to be back, baby. In 2021, he was calling the UCLA-Gonzaga game and got emotional on the broadcast. Listen to this. Dickie, it is so great to see. I know you would not miss this. All of you are aware that Dick is battling cancer. The fact that you've made it out to Las Vegas for a game that I know you had circled for a long, long time is just awesome. Great to see you. Great to be here, Dick. I didn't want to cry. I can't believe I'm sitting here. It's just really a big thrill for me. I want to thank all you people. Send me so many great messages. ESPN, Jimmy Pitaro, all my buddies at ESPN. I want to thank certainly my family and all the fans. My, you've been unbelievable. On October 12th, Obi, I'll be honest with you, when they walked in and told me I had cancer, they thought it was bile duct cancer, and it was really going to be a serious surgery and all. I never dreamt at 82 that I'll ever be a courtside again, but to be here today, I'm sorry. I hope I don't cause a problem out there, but I, I feel so emotional. Very emotional Dick Vitale there. He'll make his return. I kind of, I mean, look, I'm going to say something that might not be popular. I kind of hope that this is just him wanting to come back and be part of the broadcast and then go be Dick Vitale in retirement. You know what I mean? Like, there's so much of... And, so, and maybe he's one of these broadcasters, like Bill Shonley was this way too, where your name and who you are as a broadcaster becomes your identity. But I remember I had a conversation with Dick Vitale maybe 25 years ago in a press room at a, during an NCAA tournament, and it wasn't Dick Vitale, hey, dip, diaper dandy baby. It wasn't all that. Mm-hmm. It He was just talking to me, and I thought, gosh, what a nice person. What a uh, genuine nice person. It wasn't the on-air persona of Dick Vitale and I liked him and so I kind of I'm glad he's healthy I'm glad he's trying to come back but at his age I look I kind of hope he comes back and it's just ceremonial and then go retire and be Dick Vitale and have a great retirement no he may not know how to be Dick Vitale away from a microphone and a camera it's a problem man gonna be me I won't be 86 Trying 84? to do, do 84, trying to do another radio broadcast. 72? I'll tell you that. 63? No. <laughs> 55? I, I, always say, I always look around the press box. I think it's nice to see older sports writers who are there. Like, I haven't seen in a long time. Yeah. I was up in Seattle. I saw Steve Kelly in the hallway. Like, longtime Seattle Times columnist. He's, you know, he's retired, but he's not. He's there. And I always want to say to him, hey, it's great to see you, but I shouldn't be seeing you. You know what I mean? What are you doing? You need to go retire. And I I'm not picking on him. I'm just saying I felt the same way with Shanley. I tell Shanley, go rest, go play golf. But he liked being Bill Shanley. He liked being at the games. Maybe you won't know, though. Maybe you don't know what that's like until it's done. No, I think if, you have, if you've lost your identity in, in that, in your persona, I think it happens and it's just so long gone that you can't, yeah, you can't see it. You know, yeah, I think you need some people next to you, though, to be like, hey, man. Go. You shouldn't be here. <laughs> I'll tell you that. All right. I'll be there. But I, I look. I'm glad he's healthy. That's the bigger thing for yes, Dick Vitale. Absolutely. And I don't mind. Like if he's saying, I want to come back. I want to do one last broadcast. Just so. Just so I'm healthy. Yeah, I, I don't think he's saying that. You know. Yeah. We're watching it with Lee Corso. Okay. On on ESPN College Game Day. Much respect for an 88 year old Lee Corso. 
He had a stroke. Yeah. He's recovering from the stroke. He's been part of the broadcast. He's almost like a mascot, an honorary mascot that they have as part of the broadcast. But mm-hmm. he will occasionally say something and you go, oh, he's 88 and had a stroke. You know, yeah. it's, you know, I'm not trying to be mean here. Like, there just becomes a point where it's, if he, if he's really getting something out of it, great. But for the viewer, you're watching the deterioration of somebody who, like, did it at a high level. And the problem is, is they're not adding anything to the broadcast, like, informative. Right, like I love Dick Vitale because I love college basketball, but like I don't respect his opinions on college basketball and what I'm watching anymore because he's not in tune with the game. So like, I'm with you. Like I hope it's like a ceremonial thing, but like I, you know, I don't want him to have to do it all the time if he doesn't have to. And I don't want to sound insensitive, and I don't want Steven to sound insensitive, but like I love him. There is something redeeming about sports and how the games it themselves excuse players when it's about time for them to go. Mm-hmm. Jerry Rice can't come back and play right now. He probably wants to, but he knows he can't. He doesn't have the ability to go out and run patterns and catch balls and, you know, it they're just sports does that to the athletes. It doesn't do it to the broadcasters. Uh, and there's a no self-awareness you got to have. Cuz uh Nobody wants to be the one to tell a legendary broadcaster, hey, right. you know, it's probably time, you know. But I, here's the thing. Like, maybe he comes back and calls a game. Maybe ESPN can use him here and there on specials, yeah. special shows. He doesn't necessarily have to be on the broadcast traveling around the country. Number mm, three? Maybe. Three. See, I, I'm deteriorating every day, three. John. And a time to go. <laughs> three. Go. <laughs> uh, Bryce James, the younger guy. Oh, uh, uh, Bronny's younger brother. Yeah, he pops up at uh, Midnight Madness uh, at uh, USC. This is an official visit, or is he it just visiting? It was an unofficial visit. Mm. Um, Bronny was there. He was dancing. He didn't play, but he put on a bit of a show, and that was exciting for everybody since he had cardiac was arrest. Like break dancing or something? Yeah. And then Bryce, his, well, he wasn't break dancing. He was <laughs> What's just he doing? The dancing. worm? He was like, is he doing the worm? <laughs> doing the I don't greeting. know if it was that involved. <laughs> Um, he's doing the running man. I don't know, John. I don't know, okay? I want details on this. He was entertaining everyone with his dancing. I'm just glad he's okay. I am too. Uh, his younger brother, who now plays for Sherman Oaks, Notre Dame in California, was there on an unofficial visit. So he's a four-star prospect in the class of 2025. And he used to be at Sierra Canyon with Bronny, and then he made two transfers, first to Campbell Hall and then to Sherman Oaks, where he's going to be in a big role there. Too many high schools. That's a lot of high schools. You're missing out on high school. Well, yeah. If you're doing that, you're missing. It's all about basketball. It's too bad. I'm watching the dance here. It's a combination of him walking with the Dougie, if you know what the Dougie is. Uh, I'm not sure what the Dougie is. What's the Dougie? Showing my age here. I mean, I, I can't explain it, but have you ever done the Dougie? You, I have, you yeah. Referenced it, but you can't explain it. I mean, you kind of like, uh, I don't know. Be a broadcaster. Tell us this play by play it. Come on. Oh, is this a dance move? Yeah, yeah the Dougie is a dance. It, it was a song. Oh. Teach me how to Dougie, and then it was oh, okay. dance move. I'll look oh, that up. I yeah. thought you were saying it was an object. No, no, no. Like no, no, he was no. dancing with a Dougie. No, 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 no. Okay. He was doing kind of a Dougie, Dougie-style dance. Have I ever sounded more out of touch? I'm going to get on the World Wide Web, and I'm going to look up the Dougie <laughs> and see what that is. W-W-W dot. Whatever it is, it's fire. <laughs> it's lit. Number four. Oh, I'm so distracted now. 
four. Okay, A-Rod, I gotta know what you guys think about this. He is not happy with the fact that the Yankees have not yet retired his jersey number. So, he last played in 2016. He obviously played his role with the Yankees. Uh, but, you know, there was that little 162-game suspension for <laughs> taking PEDs. That may have to do with the fact that they have not yet retired his number. In fact, in 2021, the Yankees gave his number 13 away for the first time to outfielder Joey Gallo, and A-Rod saying that that move upset him. He's thinking that, you know, his criticism of the Yankees on TV doesn't actually help his case to have his number retired. Um, what do you think about this? I think that he is he wants everybody to forget what he did, right? They, he wants everybody to forget that he broke rules, that he was suspended, that he lied. You know, I, I, I just did a search for... A-Rod clips in our system, and I've got one on uh, President Trump talking about A-Rod. Oh. Does that interest you? Um, let's play, let's play it's 60 seconds of it. Well, I've never been a fan, and I guess I've read too many things negatively. I had a little bit of a bad experience with him. He lived in one of my buildings, and I wasn't exactly in love with Alex, and my people weren't, and he did something that I didn't like, and when somebody does something to me that I don't like, I sort of let him know it, and... You know, if he were a great champion, like as an example, Derek Jeter is a great, great champion, one of the best. It's different, but he's uh, he's a guy that uh, I thought was never a good pressure player. He, you know, batted when it wasn't so important, but if you really look at it, it was fueled by something that he wasn't supposed to be fueled by. And I always thought, frankly, you know, Randy Levine, as you know, I've been to the game that you won, the first game. Uh, but Randy Levine is a great friend of mine, and, and the Steinbrenner family, George, as you know, was one of my best friends. I love George, and I love the Steinbrenner family, and I always felt they should just say, hey, you, you misrepresented to us as to, uh, you know, the taking of drugs, the taking of whatever you want to call it, steroids, and frankly, you know, we don't want to pay you $30 million anymore. How about like a million dollars instead of $30 million? Cause there it is. That seals it. That's why they're not retiring his jersey, because everybody knows. If if President Trump knows, everybody knows. Right? I guess, yeah. Yeah. That's it. Do you Plus, think they should retire his jersey? I don't think so. No. I think, I mean, he's not getting in the Hall of Fame either. Really? No. I'm a I'm a voter in the Baseball yeah. Writers Association. I, you know, he's not he's not going to get in the Hall of Fame. Huh. All right. Uh, moving on. This I have to share. I know I can't like show you the video, but maybe you've seen it. Rice University, the Owls, uh, their football team is four and three this season. They're fifth fifth in the American Athletic Conference, and the video is circulating about their gummy worm guy. So it's this guy uh, at the most recent game who has this all-navy blue outfit. He's got black gloves on, like sanitary gloves, and a tucked-in shirt. And he is dispersing gummy worms to the team. So people are joking that, like, this is the secret ingredient to their gummy uh, success this season. Yes. Well, maybe it's the payroll and the roster players, you know. It's superstition. It's fun, though, right? You like it? Yeah. I just, I'm amused by are, it. Are gummy worms a trait that can be dispersed that way safely? 
Like, or did, would you take it if a stranger, like, was throwing gummy worms your way? Well, he's clearly, like, the players themselves are not reaching into his giant Halloween candy-sized bag of gummy worms. He's reaching into the bag and dispersing them out like he's a mama bird feeding um, his young. And is he touching them with his hands? He's just kind of dropping the gummy worms into the players' hands. People are, like, joking that maybe they're electrolyte gummy worms that have, you know, like Himalayan pink salt. Hmm. There you go. I like a gummy worm. You're uh, you're all about the gummy worm. You like a gummy worm better than a gummy bear. No. Hmm. Gummy bear is just a little more compact. The gummy worm, it, you know, there's a lot to manage there. I'm not a big gummy person. I'm not. Number five, you got one? That was number five. Number six, you got one? You no, got a five I don't B? have number six. There's no five B? There's no five B. Yeah, it's a Friday. Yeah, it is a Friday. <laughs> you know? I'm glad. Why are you asking more of me? It's called the five at five. <laughs> the five at five. I lost count. No. I was looking up the Dougie. Well, in <laughs> fairness, you did give a sixth earlier this week. Yeah. That's true. You gave a 5B. Yeah, I did. Uh, good job. Did. Good job on that. What was your favorite story there? Because I think I think you got more amusement out of the gummy story earlier than you did as you were telling I it. I know. I know. You seem to lose your enthusiasm for that story. <laughs> or is it just Friday and, yeah, this is the end of your shift? I have senioritis. You know? I have senioritis. <laughs> uh, I'm, just, I'm most intrigued by the A-Rod story, to be honest. Because I, I think he just kind of comes off as a... Um, you know, sour grapes guy. You, you and I, uh, you and I were somewhere recently, and my phone rang, and it was the uh, it was the baseball hall of fame was calling me. Okay. And I know did I did. You were, pick up? I picked up, and I said, "Did I get in?" <laughs> you were sitting right there, oh. and, um, and it was the secretary for the baseball writers association who was saying, "Hey, did you get our email uh-huh. on something?" So I just right now I just went looking to see what A-Rod's percentage was. You know, you need 75% to get in the Hall of Fame. Okay. A-Rod got 40% Ooh. on the vote Okay. In the, in the last vote. So it's not unthinkable that over time he could creep up there. And so I actually think the play he's trying to make here by getting his jersey retired mm-hmm. is there's a, there's a strategy to getting in the Hall of Fame. And it's, it's not unlike, you know, if somebody is disgraced makes a mistake. It's kind of a a restoration of his image that he's after. He's been on TV. He's done some good work trying to get visible, saying, hey, the TV stations, uh, they don't don't seem to have a problem. The network, Fox doesn't seem to have a problem putting him on TV and putting him on a panel to talk about hitting in the World Series. Yeah. Dated J-Lo. Dated, yeah. He's just trying to be visible, (laughs) trying to be visible. And I think if he, I think like the actual strategy here might be that he believes that if he can get his jersey retired by the Yankees, it's just one more step, one more little validation mm-hmm. that, you know, the Yankees are okay with what he did. Yeah. Fox is okay with what he did. Mm-hmm. But the baseball writers will be the ultimate gatekeeper. And I've not been one of those voters who is staunchly opposed to voting for or, I mean, voting against the st- the PED users. Yeah. And it causes some problems because, like, even my own dad is like, don't vote for those guys. You shouldn't vote for those guys. But <laughs> I dad I actually don't baseball. I actually don't think it was my job to police baseball. Okay. So, so why, what do you have against A-Rod? It, I don't. But I'm just saying the percentages suggest 40%. That's a big, he's got to get to 75%. That is a big leap. Yeah. To get over and, you know, in order to get induction. But not closing the door yet. On a rod, he's gonna need to have some big gains, though. He's gonna need to have like, hey, he got forty-eight percent. Hey, he got fifty-two percent. Hey, he got fifty-seven percent. 
in, in order to get in. Maybe he needs to start sending the writers gift baskets. That could help. And you say it doesn't. You say it doesn't uh, matter. But I'll tell you, the way Kurt Schilling treated a lot of media members is killing him. You know, I think he was uh, a bad guy to deal with, and I think it cost him Hall of Fame votes. Hmm. I'm not that way because I never interviewed him. I have no impression of him that way, but I've heard that over and over from people who cover baseball, that he's just not a pleasant human being to deal with when he was playing. And so, you know, in the end, those are the writers who are the ones who hold the keys to the Hall of Fame. Unfortunately, sorry, bub. you got to know your... Know your audience. Know your audience. Get to know me. All right, so (laughs) coming up, we're going to talk to uh, a guy who's putting on a baseball card show this weekend. I never do this, but I'm interested in what's going on. Stick around. Much more ahead. I was a kid. uh, When I I was a kid, I used to, uh, like a lot of you, I collected baseball cards. That's what I did. It was my thing. I didn't have a lot of money. But I would uh, get on my bicycle, and uh, I would ride a considerable distance to get to the nearest baseball card shop in my town. And there was only one baseball card shop. It was called J&J Sports Cards. It was located about as far away as from my parents' house as it possibly could get. And I would uh, ride my bicycle there, and I would select uh, one pack of baseball cards, or maybe two if I had an extra little money in my pocket, and I would uh, very carefully open the cards, and I would look through them, and I would hope that I was going to get, you know, a Roger Clemens rookie card or a or a Daryl Strawberry card, or you know, it was 1983, 1984, 1985, right in that window, and whoever was this the hot star that year, I would try to get those cards, and I didn't find out until much later that yeah, there was some cards, you know, like. You know, if you had a Mark McGuire rookie card at the time, 1985 tops, you had something. But I didn't find out until much later that the real money and the real value and the real scarcity was in the was in the vintage trading cards. And I should have just been saving my money and buying like older cards. Then I waited until you know much later to start getting into collecting you know tobacco cards, T206 cards, and cards of the 1950s and whatnot and I always, uh, I always uh, find it charming when I see kids today collecting cards. Like, Stephen, you mentioned your kid collects basketball cards, but the packs of those cards are not cheap. No, it is uh, is not a hobby to get into if you're looking to not spend a lot of money. But, yeah, he's getting into them, and so it's kind of it's hard to be like, you know what, let's, uh, let's adjust and try to figure out a strategy. It's a strategy thing now nowadays. Okay, strategy thing, or it's about hey, you got to save your money up that and too, buy a yeah. pack of cards and do all that. Um, there is a uh, event going on this weekend. There's a show coming up tomorrow. It is at Park Rose High School, and it is being put on by the Oregon Sports Card Collectors Association. Here to talk about it, Terry Neisler, friend of the show, who uh, runs this thing, and uh, and uh, by the way. Uh, you get a lot of kids in that Park Rose School District who benefit because the card shows benefit the school and the kids in the community. Terry Neisler here to talk about it. Terry, how did you get into collecting? What was your start? Well, boy, I grew up in Chicago, and Ernie Banks was my guy, and uh, my folks always had the ball game on, and he was this gracious African-American guy that was as smooth as silk, and I just utterly loved watching him play. And... I collected every card I could of his. But, you know, John, I bet you I paid a lot less per pack than you did. You I paid did. a nickel a pack. No. A nickel a pack. 
But I think you're on to something, this whole business of buying contemporary cards where people speculate versus buying vintage cards where people can really, if you really look at to make money, you make 10 to 15% per year on vintage cards just because they're a given. And the modern speculative cards can be astronomical, or the next year they can be nothing because they can't hit a curveball or they broke an ankle or something like that. So collecting is an interesting thing. We try and make it great for kids. Every kid who walks through the door gets 50 free cards. And if they come to my table, they get 15 more free cards. We want kids to have fun. We want them to feel what I felt as a kid, really admiring certain players and being connected to teams. But the truth is, John, it's not just baseball, basketball, football, or soccer. Now we've got Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon, which are things of beauty, and kids collect those readily. Yeah, I know that. My 7-year-old and 9-year-old went through a Pokemon phase, and I was having to learn all about these mythical creatures. And I was like, well, how do we, what are, where, who do they play for? What team are they on? Uh, Terry, let yeah, me ask yeah. you here. The, the Oregon Sports uh, Collectors Association, um, you know, the, the, the card show raises money. The money goes to baseball and softball programs. Uh, why is that important? Well, you know, every kid deserves to be able to play and access for many, particularly in a district where the socioeconomic quotient is not high. Sometimes they can't play because they don't have the money to participate in sports. There's these sports participation fees. Now, we make sure that nobody is left out. And, of course, we want to make sure nobody's left out on the gender side of things. So we funded baseball and softball, boys and girls. What we do next, I'm not sure, but we're, we sure love doing this. We give more than $5,000 per show. We do two shows per year. You know, we make sure that the uniforms are well kept, that the fields have improvements. Uh, it makes us feel good. And the kids, the athletes, actually come to the event and participate through helping people bring in their wares and so on and so forth. And they participate in their uniforms, too. So it's, it's this kind of family affair, district affair that, uh, it's not like NILs, you know. This is a right. this is a refreshing experience. Moms and dads comes with their boys and girls, and they participate. There's a lot of collectors that come too because there's great stuff here. But it's a um, it's a uh, increasing what shall we say range of participants that we're seeing now. All right, so this is going on tomorrow. Showtime is 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. It's happening at Park Rose Middle School. Is that right? Middle school. Thank you for correcting that. Yeah. That's absolutely right. The middle school. All right. So Park and we have a great school. relationship with the. Yeah, we have a great relationship with the district to help us to get in here and uh, know that we turn around and give them projectors or give them a, a video screen or all the tables that they need for their own events. Terry Neisler is with us uh, again. The Oregon Sports Collectors Association putting on this event, baseball card show. Tomorrow, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m., Park Rose Middle School. More than baseball cards, though. Football cards, basketball cards. You mentioned... Uh, oh, they're all here. Yeah. You, you they're mentioned all, here, John. all of that. But is it a good show if, let's say, somebody's not a collector? They just, they're just they just curious or they just kind of want to walk around. Is it a co cost you a fortune to get in there, or what, what's the cost? No, no. It's, it's uh, four bucks for an adult, nothing for kids. We passed out 1,500 tickets to kids to make sure that they knew they could come and they wouldn't have to pay a dime. As soon as they walk in, they get a raffle ticket. Likely they're going to be a winner because we're giving away stuff all the time. We've got these national breakers that send us stuff to give away in either auctions or raffles. So it's, it's a pretty dynamic environment. And right. I would add, if you just came and you wanted to walk around, the panorama of people and the range of different cards 
tell a historical story as well. I love that. Uh, what do you What do you sell at your table? What are you into? Well, you know, I used to do everything: baseball, basketball, football, modern, and vintage. As time went on, I found that I couldn't. Uh, what should I say? Do justice to that scope of things. And what did I have love for? I loved baseball. I mean, I can talk basketball and football. I can talk modern players. But when it comes down to it, it's vintage baseball that I love. And in front of me, on any given day, I do a show. There's cards ranging from 1892 to 1985. And I have some moderns. I mean, i got to throw in a Mike Trout rookie card or a you know Julio Rodriguez card because those people are loved. And Shohei Otani, oh, man, are you kidding me? Off the charts. So I do all those things. But the thing I love doing best is telling a kid to go over to that box over there, take any 15 cards you want, come over and show them to me. Tell me why you selected them. And I always make a point of congratulating them on the great selections they make. And my deal is you've got to come back and see me again next show. Say hello. Then I'll give you 15 more free cards because it's, it's a relationship. It's fun. Your your, your livelihood was in education and in and you know, but sports cards. Did you collect nonstop, or did you take breaks from it, or uh, you know, fall back in love with the hobby? What'd you do? Like you, John, I wish I'd never taken a break. I mean, I I collected until I was about thirteen or fourteen, and then school and sports really took over for me, and uh, I stopped. And my cards stayed in my desk, and they were in a couple of shoe boxes. Came home from college, mom, where's my cards? Oh, I didn't think you wanted those anymore. And I can still picture there's several Mickey Mantles that went out in that shoebox, certainly some Ernie Banks cards, lots of other people. Um, but, you know, about mm, 15 years ago, I was walking through a mall. I walked into a sports card shop, just killing time, and I saw an Ernie Banks card from 1958, yellow in color. I looked at it and said, I don't know how much that cost, but i got to have that. I picked it up, brought it home, put it on my desk, and it sat next to me for the next three weeks. And every day I felt a little younger. Every day I felt a little more hope. Every day I felt like, hey, this is a good thing. So I decided to collect every Ernie Banks card made, and that happened 15 years ago. Good for you. Uh, the the grading industry, for people who don't understand, can you explain to our listeners who are going, hey, I don't understand what PSA is and what grading is about. Why is grading important these days in, in the industry? Well, the better the card looks and better the card looks at a real close-up, the greater the value is. And so you've got a grade range from 1 to 10, 10 being gem mint, meaning it's truly flawless. And, you know, if you if you had a gem mint Mickey Mantle card from 1952 today, you, you wouldn't have enough places to spend the money that you'd get for that card. But even a 3 Mickey Mantle of that era is worth seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 uh, simply because they are so rare to have made it through the test of time and the handling perhaps by kids back in 1952. So this grading process assures, A, that it's a legitimate card because occasionally there are fakes, and secondly, what the true condition is, and condition creates value. Terry, I really appreciate what you do for the community. Park Rose Middle School, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. tomorrow. Great event. I appreciate you joining us to talk a little bit about it. And, uh, and uh, you know, I hope you have a good show tomorrow. Thank you, sir. And I love when you bring in the family to participate. 
Hope you do it tomorrow. We'll see you again soon, John. All right, Terry. Thank you. Take care. Uh, we got soccer tomorrow, and I got a college football game to cover. But if you're looking for a sports event, you want to go check out some trading cards, Stephen, you can pop over there with your kid and uh, check it out, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. at Park Rose Middle School. All right, coming up, some parting thoughts, and uh, we'll give our final answers on the weekend of college football. Leave it here. Been a fun week. Been a fun week. What happened on Monday? We started absorbing the... Washington-Oregon defeat or the game that Washington uh, won or Oregon lost. Did Washington win that game or did Oregon lose that game last Saturday? I think, I think Washington won that game um, because it, it's not as if – I mean, Oregon went for it on the fourth down, but Washington still had to convert, right? They still had to go down the 50 yards down the field against that Oregon defense. They did it in two plays. So I'm going to give Washington the win. I think Oregon lost it. I, I, I get Michael Penix Jr. made the plays. you got to tip your cap to that guy. But – if Oregon executes on fourth down or punches in one of those uh, touchdowns or just settles for two field goals, way different game. Or if Camden Lewis makes the field goal. I think, I think Oregon did too you, much wrong. Do you think Oregon was the much better team, though? Yes. Oh, I think Oregon's I, – I don't know. I, much is a strong word there, but – I think Oregon's the better team, and I think clearly the better team. But not, I, I, don't, I, do t- I wouldn't say much. See, I do too, but I, because I don't think it was – I mean, they outplayed Washington, but it all comes down to a couple different plays. That's why I can't give Oregon losing the game. I have to give it to Washington for going out and getting it. I, I think if Oregon and Washington played 100 times uh, at a neutral field, I think Oregon would win 70 of those times. Hmm. I was going to say 60, N- but yeah. N- neutral field. Yeah. It, and I think – if it was home and home, maybe a little different because uh, I, I think it's tougher to win on the road and beat a team. Maybe it's more like 60, 65, but Oregon was better. Oregon's a better team. And if they play again, I have no doubt Oregon's going to win the game. I have, I, have a, uh, I have a friend who reached out to me middle of the week, and he's, he's in his 70s, and he was uh, visiting a friend this week who's a diehard Duck fan who's in hospice care. And the guy who was in hospice care was, you know, he's got good perspective. He's facing the end of his life. He is lucid, and he happens to be a, a, a Duck fan, and he had watched Oregon lose to Washington on Saturday. All right, you want to talk about, like, kind of the reality of losing a game. And Dan Lanning came out and said he realized when Oregon lost the game, they lost what? Fans, they lost, fans lost, too, right? Fans were frustrated, too. But here was an Oregon fan who is in hospice care watching his team and had, uh, you know, not angrily, but just lamenting to his friend upon the visit that that he's not going to get to see Oregon making its way back to the Pac-12 championship game and playing Washington again. He just doesn't have that kind of time. And, you know, I, w- I was kind of like, it piqued my interest because it's such a, it's such a real, authentic, complicated scenario where we all say it's just a game, the stakes, are, it's not life and death, and, and then you, you find out that there is actually a guy out there who's in hospice care who's rooting for his team and really kind of bummed that his team lost to Washington. And he's keenly aware that there's an arc to every season and that you know how this is going to play out. Of course, Duck fans are all hoping Oregon will run the table. 
get another shot at Washington, and avenge that defeat. And I actually think Oregon fans would be disappointed if Washington lost games to the point where Washington couldn't get back to Vegas because the Husky fans are always going to say, we had your number. So I think there probably are some Oregon fans out there, a large percentage of Oregon fans that are hoping that this is a, you know, it's like any three-act play and we're in act two and something bad happens to the protagonist. You know, Oregon loses to Washington in a very unfortunate, dramatic way, misses the field goal at the uh, end of the game that would have tied it. Bad decisions, arguably, by the coach that put Oregon in a bad position, disadvantageous position, and Oregon loses the game. But we all know there's another act coming. But for the guy in hospice care, he doesn't get the third act. And he's saying, damn it, I I envy you. You're going to get to see Washington and Oregon in the Pac-12 title game. He says he knows it's going to happen. I I just thought it was a really interesting perspective to add to all the conversation this week. And I literally have had numerous people write me who are Duck fans who are saying, I'm still not over the game. And I I don't really know what to say to that. If you're not over the game, like literally... You're not in hospice care. You're going to get to see how this plays out. Um, Knock on wood, all of us are going to get to the end of the season, and we're going to get to see what happens. Maybe Oregon State squeaks in there. Maybe it turns out Washington wasn't the best team in the conference. Maybe it turns out Oregon wasn't either. Like, we don't know yet. That's all to be determined. But I think if Oregon and Washington get there, I I don't think Oregon's losing that game. I think Oregon's gonna will win the Pac-12 championship game if they can get there against Washington. I think that is a uh, like I'm I'm almost a hundred percent that Oregon would win that game if they play again. I just think Oregon will be locked in. Oregon will be flying around in the way that Utah was flying around the last two seasons, playing for something unfinished. That's hanging out out there. Now let's talk about our locks for the weekend, Stephen. I like Oregon to beat Washington State. I'm saying beware of the first quarter because there could be a little bit of an emotional letdown, but I just think Oregon's the better team. I'm locking that in. I think Oregon wins that by three touchdowns. I think they cover the 20 and a half. Are you ready to lock in your pick? Uh, Yeah, I am. I I think it's going to be UCLA over Stanford. Um, I think UCLA completely dominates this game, and you know the spread is big anyways, but I I, I think I look at this game and – Stanford coming off that emotional win over Colorado. Yes. And it's a complete letdown spot. UCLA uh, playing Oregon State really struggled. Dante Moore looks really bad. We'll see what they do at quarterback. But, uh, you know, I, I just I look at this spot for UCLA and Stanford and I say, give me UCLA minus 17 on the road. Like, it's not that. I mean, three, it's three scores. It's a lot. But Stanford coming off that win, I, I just think it's a big letdown spot for them. It's kind of their season defining win for Troy Taylor, right? To go on the road and beat Dion and beat Colorado. So I think UCLA uh, comes in and wins that game by a lot. I think there's no way UCLA loses it, but I'm a little wary of UCLA covering the 17 just because of the way Dante Moore has made mistakes and UCLA's offense operates. Their last three games, they've scored 24, 25, and 7. And so, I, you know, Stanford's getting 17 in that game. Can Stanford – I don't think Stanford will score a lot, but can Stanford get to 14? Can they get to 17? Can they, can they lose 28-16? Like, that's kind of what I see happening, and if that happens, they don't cover that. But here's another tell, Stephen. We, you know, Wilner and I have been trying to get Chip Kelly on the podcast for a couple weeks. 
I thought it was really interesting that he was available to us on a Friday morning of game week. That is, that kind of, I went, whoa, like, we're really going to do this on a Friday morning? And he seemed very loose in our conversation. I don't think, like, I don't think he'd ever say it. I don't think he's overlooking Stanford, but I think he probably feels pretty good about his team going to Stanford and handling that that game. And think about Dante Moore. You know, he, he was in over his head at Research Stadium in part because the crowd at Research Stadium is super loud. Oregon State's pretty good, and that crowd is loud. It's disruptive. Washington State's defense, they had a pick six on him. I just kind of wonder if Stanford's built for a young quarterback because it's going to be like a library in that stadium. It's not going to be a hostile crowd. You're not going to run into a great defense. It's just Stanford. I think it's kind of like Dante Moore is going to be about as good as he can be as a college quarterback. I agree because he's shown flashes, right? Like we, The stat that you brought up is he only thrown one touchdown pass is the most in his career. But he's shown flashes of big play potential, and Stanford, I think, is the perfect situation to go into on the road and you know maybe get two touchdown passes because, like you said, the crowd's not into it. The team on Stanford isn't that great. They're not that talented, especially on the defensive side. I mean, we saw what Shadour and that Colorado office did to them in the first half. So, yeah, I mean, I... It is worrisome. It's a total backdoor cover type of thing where Stanford, you know, they're not going to quit and they can get a touchdown late in the game, but uh, I'm willing to lay that 17 and uh, get get the uh, Bruins. I I think Stan – here's my thing. is like I always start out when I'm picking these games and I go, okay, how much can, like, the the weak team in this game – clearly I think we both agree UCLA is going to win. But how many points can Stanford score? And I kept arriving at, like, 16. You know, it's they're not going to go crazy. I wouldn't be surprised if they score 10. You know, 10 to 16, maybe 14, maybe 17. They're right in that range. And so then, uh, you know, then I start looking at UCLA and I go, okay, if they go bananas, what's bananas for them? Like bananas for them would be like 31. Yeah. Right? So that's, I, I still, I like Stanford in the 17. Like for a minute, if we can talk before the end of the show about Portland State, they're playing tomorrow at home out at Hillsborough Stadium, 1 o'clock kickoff. If you want to see a game and uh, and get in and be able to see it at a reasonable price, go vikes.com to get tickets. But Idaho State at Portland State, 1 o'clock. Bruce Barnum's team, as I mentioned to him earlier this week, is undefeated at home. Knocking on wood, he is. Uh, I reminded him of that, and he scolded me. But uh, Vikings coming off a big win at Northern Arizona. Idaho State beat Eastern Washington, so two teams coming off wins. Portland State is a 14-and-a-half-point favorite. Yeah, I found the spread. There's a website that offers Big Sky Conference spreads. 14-and-a-half. What do you like there, Stephen? I'm going to put you on the spot. Portland State, Idaho State. Uh, I'm a mortgage bet on the Vikings, right? <laughs> Barnum, man. I'm trusting Coach Barney Ball. I, I mean, the thing about this, John, he's talked about his team all year. We've had him on so many times. He's very confident in this team and how good they are. So, like, it is a fun It'll be a fun game to watch. Like They play good football, and he thinks their team is really good, so I would have to lay the points with uh, Coach Barney. Yeah, I, I took it. Uh, I think Idaho State will score a little. I don't think Portland State will cover the 14.5, but I think they win. I picked them to win but not cover. He'll probably be mad at me for that, but oh well. Uh, the other Big Sky game that is uh, probably a higher-profile game is Montana State is at Sacramento State. This is the number 2 team in the country against the number 3 team in the country. The defending co-champions in the Big Sky Conference last year. And this game is a rare Big Sky Conference game that's on ESPN2. 
So you have two games this year that are on ESPN2. This is one of them. So they're expecting some big eyeballs Saturday night, 7.30. Montana State, Sacramento State, if you're a degenerate looking for a game late on Saturday night. But um, I like Montana State. They're a a 7.5-point favorite. Uh, I picked them to win but not cover. I got it 28-27. How about that? Love it. You know me. I love a late-night uh, degenerate game to get all your money back. So yeah, there you go. I'll be on, on that. <laughs> all right. I want everyone to have a great weekend. Make sure you get plenty of sleep. Don't be on your phone looking at TikTok. Chip Kelly's telling you to get everything off your nightstand and get a good night's sleep. we got a big college football weekend. We'll be back next week with a huge week of radio as Oregon State and Oregon have big football games. The Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time, just a good time.